This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 511's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the 
products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Shauna Jukes. Now, Shauna and Joshua Jukes had several children, the youngest of which was named Trucker a three-year-old boy who literally grabbed the hearts of so many of us around the world. Now, for those of you who have never heard Trucker's story, I urge you to listen to episode 179 with Joshua first. Once you hear the backstory, you'll understand the power of this conversation with Shauna. Now, this interview couldn't have come at a better time. It was literally recorded about a week ago, and since then, I lost my beloved German shepherd, Nikita Nini, and my grandmother the same weekend. So this conversation truly prepared me and gave me some tools for my own grief as I'm recording this intro. And I cannot recommend highly enough Shauna's book, Even If, that we discuss. Now, before we get to this incredibly important and powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Shauna Jukes. Enjoy. Well, Shauna, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you so, so much for sending me a copy of your book. Um, one of the most beautiful things about this podcast, is I have a bunch of signed books with, you know, um, heartfelt words from the author. So that was a beautiful thing. Secondly, you quoted uh, Josh's forward from my book in your book. So I sent that to him today um, and he said he was moved by that. And then thirdly, of course, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. 
Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so honored to be here. I I know I said this to you just in our brief conversation before we started here, but I just love how you're showing up in the world. I love that you are having a positive impact, that your social media presence is always inspiring. It makes me laugh or smile or something, <laughs> showcasing humanity's greatness, <laughs> great moments for the most part, but also keeping it real and talking about issues that really matter in your podcast. So I love the way you're just showing up in the world. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I think I think I kind of broke protocol a little bit by that video with the Liver King at the Buckingham Palace gates, but that needed to be shared too. <laughs> I wouldn't oh say that gosh. was all positive. It was more just like a face palm post, but yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what was one of my favorite ones that you posted recently was that uh, that kid dancing. Oh, with oh, the Down gosh. syndrome. Oh, amazing! So good, so good. I showed my whole family and saved. it's just i mean there's so much good in the world and i think that's it it's i'm not doing anything out of the ordinary at all but why have doom and gloom and people arguing each other and being divisive on the screens when you can show what amazing humans there are in the world and push the walls out on the good parts of community that i i believe will then kind of reduce the amount of negativity and nastiness absolutely agree i love it All right. So for people listening, where are we finding you today geographically? Geographically, I live in the country on in Haiku, Hawaii. So you might hear chickens in the background at any given moment. There's a ton of wild chickens. And yeah, it's beautiful. It's green. We live kind of on the border of the rainforest. So I was recently in Utah and I was saying to my girlfriend, I love getting off the island. It's really nice because I wasn't raised here. And so it's nice when you go somewhere else and then the best part about leaving is always flying home. (laughs) Some people fly home to, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to say anywhere because I don't want to say bad. There's great parts about everywhere, but it is a beautiful feeling to fly home to Maui in the country and call it home. Absolutely. I tell my my kids this as well. You got to remember that you live somewhere that people save up their entire life to come visit once. So never forget that. It's true. Like you're on the plane and everyone's all excited because they're going to Hawaii for their vacation. And you're like, peace. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Enjoy your week. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So just as a kind of pseudo icebreaker, what I've seen recently, you know, from from yourself, from the kids, from Joshua is chickens and vegetable gardens Mm -hmm. and spear fishing. So what did the last two years look like for the Jukes family? And what impact did your lifestyle have as far as a self-sufficient element compared to maybe some of the urban and suburban communities that you saw on the screens? Yeah. So when you say the last two years, I'm assuming like pandemic wise, like world shutting down, that kind of thing. Yeah, that that significant life changing event that we want to (laughs) endure. (laughs) Worldwide pandemic. Uh, I think for us, and I would never take away how hard it's been for a lot of people, but for our family, it was a total blessing. Um, There's this part of me and my husband that just longs for the simplicity of life. Like sometimes I think, what would it have been like to be alive in the 1800s when you just, you just were with your family. You just, you grew your own food. You hunted your own meat. You built your own things. You stored up food for the winter. There's something in me that just longs for that simplicity, which 
you know, in this day and age, we just, it's so easy to get so far away from that. So I think what the pandemic did for us was really force us to go. I mean, it did it for a lot of people, but we're so blessed where we live again, because we're in the country and we live on a gulch where the kids and Joshua can hunt and we can grow food all year round. So we have this big, beautiful organic garden. Um, And so, yeah, we just spent a lot of time doing that at home, growing food, uh, hunting. My husband, he, he's such an incredible father. He's, he's, he's seriously my hero, but he does such a good job with my boys of, of teaching them. Like they are lethal with a bow. They don't shoot. I mean, they can hunt with guns, but they don't, they shoot with a bow, which if you know anything, a hunting bow hunting is a lot more of a skilled style of hunting. Cause you actually have to stalk the animal, get close. And we don't kill animals just to kill animals. Joshua has done a really good job in teaching them that we utilize all of the aspects of the animal and whatever animal we kill, we're going to eat. So <laughs> they have, they always have so many adventure stories, but they were on the other side of the Island visiting a friend who just bought property for the weekend. And I guess driving out of the property, Mac saw a wild, goat and shot it with the crossbow and I was like what did you do with the goat he's like in the cooler mom (laughs) so great right okay well I guess we're gonna figure out a good way to eat a goat (laughs) but yeah it's so it's been really cool and then what we do when we process the animal is you know we make dog food we you know we utilize every part of the animal that we can we even eat the organs um it's really really actually healthy for you Um, even though the taste can be a little bit funky. So we're working on, you know, just finding recipes that works for everybody. And, um, and then we even make bone broth with the bones. So we try to utilize animals as much as we can. And then they're also lethal. I always tell everyone they're lethal on land and in water. So they're amazing little spear fishermen, my husband and, and my boys. So it's really fun. We don't hardly ever buy meat. We only will buy meat when we're out at a restaurant, really, if we go out for dinner. But we process most of our own meat and seafood, which is such a gift. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important lesson. I think a lot of us, and I'll include myself because I live in a very, you know, small property suburban community. So we've got a tiny little yard in the background. So all I grow is herbs. That's it. Um, and, you know, we, we really had a, a, an awakening as to the fragility of our food source. Um, and I know I've, I've talked a lot about exactly what you said. I think we would solve so many issues in this country if we just reverse engineered to how people moved and ate 150 years ago. And I truly do. There's some amazing advancing technology that we could bring forward with us, but we need to regress, I think, in some of those areas. So when you hear people that had already kind of built that for themselves before the pandemic hit, whether it was on their property like you, whether it was some of these agri-hoods that I've had on where the community is built around a farm and not detracting at all from the pain, as we are going to talk about, of losing a loved one through the COVID crisis. Outside of that, the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the infrastructure failures, all these things, they were pretty much untouched by it because they lived as we did 150 years ago. They were a a village around a farm. So I think these are important lessons for us to hear, not only from a wellness point of view, but a a survival point of view. You know, if if a pandemic happens again, and let's say Amazon doesn't work anymore and Grubhub ceases to exist, now what are you going to do? Right. I know. It's so bizarre. Um, I think I think that every time. So after Trucker passed, I learned a lot, as you know, in our book, just about 
you know, holistic healing alongside of conventional therapies while our son was fighting cancer. And, and when the pandemic hit, I went back to school. And so I studied to be a nutritional therapy practitioner. So to me, it actually breaks my heart when I see people buying beyond meat and they feel like it's a healthy choice because it's marketing, right? And if you don't know, you don't know. So I always tell people one of the best ways that you can support your health is start reading labels, start knowing what's in your food, right? And a lot of times, like I was recently at my mother-in-law's and she was like, what did you learn in nutritional therapy school? And I was like, you, you want me to sum up your education? She's like, yeah. I was like, start reading labels on your food. <laughs> so we opened up recovered. It was a really fun little experiment. And I was like, look at your Skippy peanut butter. Tell me what the first ingredient is. Canola oil and sugar. I was like, <laughs> but people just don't know. They don't know that, you know, canola oil causes a lot of inflammation. Why add sugar? Peanuts are great on their own. So anyway, it, yeah, it's been a process. And but it does. It breaks my heart because people really, truly feel like, oh, I'm making a healthy choice. But if you look at the 27 ingredients, I'm just throwing a number out there. It's actually probably more that's listed in Beyond Meat. None of it is good for you. Very little of it. And it's highly, highly processed. Yeah. And that's the key key word, I think, is, is processed. You know, I mean, you can choose a plant-based diet and it works really well for a lot of people, but there's a misunderstanding. Plant-based plant -based means, you know, full of whole foods and vegetables. It doesn't mean, all right, go have veggie pizzas and, you know, beyond meat, as you said. And I, I don't mind a Beyond Burger once in a while. But, you know, I don't demonize meat either. But I think where I can do better is just purely removing processed foods you know and, and putting mm -hmm. more vegetables in their place yep yep a whole foods diet the the real food doesn't have ingredients it is the ingredient <laughs> so the more simple the ingredients and if you are going to buy processed food there are some companies out there making great things just you know i always tell everyone as a nutritional therapy practitioner to keep it try to keep your processed foods to five ingredients or less and that you can pronounce them and you know what they are. <laughs> That's going to serve you well. And here's, and here's the thing. There's not one person who's 100% good at that. You know, like we try to stick to an organic diet. We do the best that we can. But, you know, yeah, it's tricky. We live in a world where you actually have to seek out real food almost more than processed food. It's just that's what's available. Yeah, 100%. Wild. Well, I actually have some questions as far as the holistic side when it comes to discussing, you know, trucker's journey, um, but I don't mm -hmm. want to jump the gun. So let's start at the very beginning of your timeline. Obviously, we've heard Joshua's story, um, so it's going to be kind of cool hearing, you know, from the other side of the marriage. Um, so tell <laughs> me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so um, I was born in Lloyd Minister, Canada. I, I grew up in Canada. And then the first part of my life was in just rural towns in Canada. My parents were married, I think, for almost 17 years. They got divorced when I was six. And then my mom quickly got with my stepdad. So my mom and my dad had two. My stepdad had two. And then um, a few years later, we moved. So we were living in Saskatchewan, a, a small town, Assiniboia, Saskatchewan. And then we moved to another small town, Sylvan Lake, Alberta. Um, which is about an hour and a half north of Calgary. Have you ever heard of the Calgary Stampede? That's oh, yeah. what most people yeah, think the, of when they... And the games. And the games, of course. Yeah. And then 
Banff is about three hours from there. So really small town. Um, so we had my, so me and my brother and then my older stepbrother and stepsister. And then when we were 11, we met a kid at an arcade that, um, we just like fell in love with him. He became really good friends with me and my brother and my family got to know him. And he just had a super tragic story. His mom actually died in a car accident and his dad worked oil rigs and, um, nobody really wanted him. And this kid was just, uh, amazing and my family I'll never forget they sat us down one day and they were like how would you feel if we just kept Sheldon and we were like yeah, let's adopt our best friend <laughs> so so he was two months older than me so then I'm the baby of five really and we just never they were my step brother and sister they are my step brother and sister but not really I don't really I don't remember my life without them because my parents were my mom was with my stepdad since I was six so they're just we're just brothers and sisters <laughs> and then uh tragically so I'm the baby Sheldon was just two months older than me so we grew up with all the same friends but um he was killed in a car accident when he was 29 we were 29 so super sad my first loss the first big loss I think in life yeah, it's well, a hard one. I mean, that's horrendous, and I want I want to get to that because I know you talk about that in the the grief backpack um, chapter. Mm. Um, going back to that before though, as far as the dynamic of your family, there's a lot of there's, there's there's a small percentage of families that would say let's adopt this young man who seemingly is you know directionless as far as parental love and you know could definitely find himself probably going down the wrong path if he's not mentored and brought into you know a, a family what was different about yours that maybe some of the other families around in what aspect that uh, we were willing to take him on not, not so much willing i mean there's mean? there's an element of altruism of 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 selfless especially when you already have a large family to take in you know a young boy mm. like that so i think it takes a special family to do something like that mm, yeah i think that's just all my parents honestly they're just such loving people and they've always just had a heart for the underdog like how could we not take them in right He's got nowhere to go. Anyway, yeah, it just all happened. And I don't know that I've ever actually really even thought about it. It just, I think that's just what I knew. Like, that's what you do. I would do the exact same thing. <laughs> there was a kid who just didn't, how do I want to be like, of course, yes. And we, and we say that all the time. We just adopt people. Like in Hawaii, we have a term called hanaid. So hanaid means like you adopt them and Right now we have a, we call him our man child, a 21 year old man child. <laughs> we met him. He just moved to Hawaii. He's from North Carolina. He came from a similar family dynamic as ours. So we have girl, boy, 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 four kids and his family. He's the oldest boy, girl, girl, girl. So when we met him, it was through a mutual friend that was, you know, like, Hey, will you take this guy that works for me spearfishing? And my husband was kind of like, sure, I'll take your friend's spirit. <laughs> like, it's a very skilled thing. So, you know, it's not like you would just do that for, for anyone. So anyway, th this kid shows up and Josh was like, oh, he's actually closer to my kid's age than me. And he was just really cool. And he's just part of our family now. Like we, from the first day we met him, he just fit in and he always wanted brothers. And so he doesn't live with us. He's, he's a man, he's doing his thing, but I've call my man child because yeah <laughs> and in my heart is like well I hope that when my kids leave and go somewhere that they will meet a family like us that we're just his family here like he comes for family dinner he does all the things with us he shows up on important occasions you know he's just 
family. We have a lot of family. <laughs> when I was little, my dad was a, a horse vet, veterinarian, and I would watch people from the extended royal family. Actually, my, my sister's best friend, Laura, is Laura Parker Bowles, so Camilla's daughter. So we had wow. they, now the king's wife all the way through to homeless gentlemen walk through our doors. And I watched a, the same kind of thing. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're nice, you're welcome. If you're an asshole, you're not welcome. It's pretty simple regardless yeah, of your, your bank balance. But yes. it kind of reminds me of, of what you hear with, with the Ohana, you know, the, that kind of family um, philosophy in Hawaii. So mm -hmm. coming from seemingly that kind of family in Canada, what was your perspective of that kind of environment on the island? I don't know. They always say that the islands, Hawaii will either embrace you or spit you out. And it's true. So I never planned on staying here. I I was just in a on a I was just gonna stop here. It was gonna be a a stopping point on my journey. And I I literally thought I was just gonna be single and travel my whole life. I never really wanted to have a family. I never wanted to settle down. And um, when I came to Hawaii, I came to go to massage school in two thousand and three. So I I started traveling as soon as I finished high school, and I went like kind of everywhere. I did a college program in Mexico. I lived with a Mexican family for two months. And then I was like, there's so many places I could go in the world. And so I would go home, work three jobs for the summer, save money and go. And then I was gone for a year and a half. I went Europe, Indonesia. I lived in Australia for a year. I traveled through Nepal and India on my way home, came back to a small town. And like, I was just like, peace out, small town. <laughs> stopping point now and so I moved to the mountains I moved to Whistler which is a big resort town and I was just snowboarding and and waiting tables in my 20s and I was like I just I hit a wall waiting tables one day I remember I was like I can't ask one more person what they want on their baked potato I just can't I'm gonna lose my mind <laughs> like butter <laughs> sour cream bacon bits and chas like so you know anyway so I was like well what am I gonna do because I waited tables all over the world I'm like how am I just gonna keep traveling what am I going to do and I ran into a girl that I'd surfed with in Costa Rica who's still a really dear friend of mine I ran into her one night after work and I was like I can't wait tables anymore what am I going to do and she's a little French Canadian fireball she's like I'm going to massage school in Maui come with me and I was like yes that's brilliant massage school in Maui so <laughs> so I I signed up for like the longest possible course that I could which was a year part-time and yeah, landed here and I was only going to stay for that year. I was going to go back to the mountains. I was going to keep traveling. I was going to be a massage therapist all over the world. And I met my husband in the surf. <laughs> so we met and we have kind of a crazy story. We just, we actually, so <laughs> here's the, here's the real skinny. You want it? No, you give me the full <laughs> story. Let's do it. Okay. So I was working at this little cafe and he used to come in every morning. He was bartending. So he would he would come in after like a big night. And a girl that I worked with had a crush on him. And, and um, she was like, look at that guy. Look at his arms. He's so hot. And I was dating a guy then at the time. Um, and I was like, he, I just wasn't interested. You know, I was like, whatever. And so we kind of knew who each other was because the town that we were working in was really small. And and it was one day we were surfing Honolulu Bay, which is the other side of the island. And he was in the surf and he paddled over without a shirt on. And I was like, oh, shit, he's got a lot more than just nice arms. <laughs> <laughs> 
true story, our relationship started by me perving on him in the surf. And so <laughs> we started talking then like, oh, hey, what are you doing over here surfing or whatever? We just started, we started to become friends and, and, you know, the rest is kind of history. Friends became <laughs> more than friends and five months in, we're pregnant. We were like, oh, that happened. And so I'm not going to go into more details with that, but we ended up with a shotgun wedding. Um, we were nine months pregnant, so we got married August 2nd, and our daughter was born August 19th. And all the things that I would have been voted least likely to, to do, have four kids, settle, I was married first, uh, I stayed in Hawaii, all the things I thought I wouldn't do, here I am, you know? But what's that saying? I, I like to say it all the time, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, when before all this, when when you were in high school, what were your career aspirations? What were you dreaming of becoming? Because I mean, this sounds like so much fun. Whatever you're about to tell me is probably going to pale in significance. But what were the original <laughs> plans? You know what is so weird? And knowing me now, because now I have like these huge dreams and these huge goals, and I'm doing so many things. But then I just didn't really like I never was the one that was wanted to go to medical school or become a lawyer. I just I didn't I just wanted to explore the world. I just would have been happy just having a simple life, just cruising. I love people. I still love people. I love meeting people. I love cultures. And I don't know, I've just always kind of had this love for humanity, which I think now is on such a deeper level. And I feel like I'm stepping into my calling to help walk people through hard things, which I also never thought that I would do. So I just didn't have big dreams not weird no no it's, it's not to say we know what's weird about it though is being i mean i was about to say american being canadian um which maybe is a little bit less weird because i think there's more of a kind of you know backpacking uh, mentality out there but mm -hmm. in the uk i was just telling my son this we normally take what's called a gap year so you graduate school and a lot of times you'll travel for a year before you go to university which i think is such a good idea because let's be honest none of us have a fucking clue what we're going to do when we're 18 years old no. so you know go Hello. see the world and if you still want to be a doctor a year from now then be a doctor absolutely but um you don't see that so much in the u.s and obviously we're such a big country i mean you can see all these different you know topography and cultures and communities within our borders but when you're two little rocks in the middle of the the atlantic like the uk is there's a real draw you know we're a wanderlust so what do you think gave you that when i'm assuming probably a lot of the people from your hometown didn't just pack up a bag and start traveling the world that's such a great question i haven't thought about this in a really long time but it was my brother sheldon so he, the one that passed when he turned 18, which was a couple months ahead of me, he got a small inheritance from his mom and he just took off and he spent a summer backpacking in Europe and he came home with the best stories, you know, like just met the best people and he was wild. He stayed in um, some island in, I think, Corfu. Is that, you know, yeah. Corfu? Yeah, I think it's yeah, near, near Greece, I think. Yes, it's a huge party island, but he just had the most wild stories. And so it was always him that was like, go, you know, Sylvan Lake will always be here, go. And um, he really inspired me. There was a few people who took off and left, but he was the big one because I got all the, you know, behind the scenes <laughs> good stories from him. So he really inspired me to just take off. And even when I was gone, when I was when I lived in Australia for a year, actually him and my 
and one of my other brothers, they both called me and said they met the girls they were going to marry. So I think I probably just would have stayed illegally in Australia forever. I mean, I loved it there, but they both called me and they're like, we met the girls. We're getting married that summer. You have to come home. And I was like, ah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yay, I'm happy for you. But, you know, I and now actually I'm really grateful because as much as I love Australia, I think Kauai is far enough. Like It would have been even an extra step, as you know, to be away from everybody else in your family. Hawaii is at least it's still half attainable from Australia, if that yeah. makes sense. No, it does. It's a lot closer, especially to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, yeah. one unique lens I think a lot of people have that come from America or Canada and then travel is... Firstly, I think it changes your perspective on back home. But secondly, for me, you start learning, wow, in in this country, they seem to do this really well. In this country, I love the way they do that. With all your travels, were there any things in any particular countries that that you thought, wow, if we did this in the US or we did this in Canada, that would make this even better than it is now? Gosh, that's a good question. You know, I don't know about that, but... but here's a perspective. So when I left Australia to go home for my brother's weddings, I, I did Nepal and India by myself, which was a huge thing at the time. And my poor mom, you know, I was like, I'm going trekking in Nepal. I'll call you when I'm out of the mountains by myself. I went to Nepal. She's like, oh, my gosh. She's like on her knees every night praying <laughs> I make it out alive. Um, but I remember I lived with a couple in in. Australia that was from Muncie, Indiana. So they were like, well, hey, book your ticket and fly through Chicago on the way home, come and see us. And I was like, that's a brilliant idea. So when I left India, so I spent, I did two treks in Nepal. I was in the Himalaya for 24 days, which was life-changing experience. And then I went to, I flew out of India. So I was on a bus to India. Anyway, it was just, you know, I remember being in India and being like, we, I stopped at a bus stop and I was like, excuse me, sir, where's the bathroom? And he's like, everywhere where's the toilet? I was like, that's great. Cause I'm the only white girl. Like everyone's staring at me already. Like I'm not just going to go squat. Go poop in the Ganges. It was nuts. But all that to say, I remember, you know, India, India is like a different world. I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's every, everything challenged all your senses all at once. Like the smells are insane. The temperatures are crazy. Like I remember walking across the border in India and it, and this storm hit and there's this big sign, welcome to India. And there's like stuff flying everywhere. And I was like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and um, so for me, okay, so let me gather my thoughts for a second. In India, like if someone's missing an arm, they just come right up to you. They're like, I'm missing my arm. Now give me money, right? Which is like, we're not used to that kind of in your face poverty but what I did see there was okay so you have all these maimed people that are in the high touristy areas that are asking for money but no one's hungry like there's stand there's vendor stands everywhere everybody's like, like feeding the kids everyone's just kind of taking care of each other that's what I saw which was like yes there's a poverty level but it's like whatever wealth is there is shared And I thought that was really beautiful to see. So the contrast, right, when I flew back into Chicago to meet up with my friends, I called them. I'm like, okay, I'm in Chicago. And they were like, what? I gave them the wrong time. 
They're like, well, we're a five hour drive away. And I was like, okay. They're like, take a cab to our downtown apartment and give your stuff to our doorman and then just like cruise Chicago. And I was like, okay. They're like, we're on our way. We'll be there in five hours. And so the contrast for me. Okay. So now if you get, if you get the picture in your mind, the visual, I had just been backpacking in Nepal and India. I'd seen all kinds of things that were like out of this world. And now I'm downtown in one of the richest cities in America. I looked like a bum. I felt like a bum. You know, I hadn't showered in three days. I'd been traveling on planes and trains and all the things. And I was like, whoa, this is so crazy. It was such a harsh contrast. And I think that when you go to third world countries, you expect the culture to be different. And I forgot there's the re-entry culture shock as well, right? Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I, I hear that from some members of our military, like literally hours before they were, you know, sometimes were actually deployed in Afghanistan or somewhere. And then mere hours, if not a day or two, they're back in, you know, rural wherever. Um, and it's, I mean, it's jarring. I can I can only imagine how jarring that must be. Yeah, it's a wild perspective. And here, I feel like there's a side of our our culture that's kind of, you know, dog eat dog. <laughs> and I agree with you. There's also so many amazing people doing amazing things. But um, yeah, I don't know. Cities can be hard. Yeah, I think the sadly the squeaky wheels, a loud voice is a dog eat dog. You know, I mean, the perfect example. It's always amazed me. Think about, I mean, here in Florida, we have CVS and Walgreens, and they'll build across the street from each other. So that whole business model is basically to destroy your competition rather yeah. than, well, why don't you go over there and we'll be on this side of town and that way everyone can access their medication, the tampons when they need to. And then we yes. have this, this horror. I don't know. It's just like, you know, you high schools play each other in football and it's not like, you know, sportsmanship at the end. A lot of times it's, oh, we're going to crush them. They're, you know, talking shit about them. It's a game. And I think yes. that's the problem is that, you know, you can have competition and you can have, you know, entrepreneurship and, and of course, you know, protect your business and, and be not aggressive, but, you know, want to grow your own business. But at the same time, if it becomes at the detriment of your community, that's the part of the conversation I don't see here. It's it's take, 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 mm -hmm. take, take. Mm -hmm. And even with, you know, healthcare and things like that. Well, I don't want to I don't want to help these students with their student debts. I don't want to help other people's healthcare. I've got mine. And that's the real cancerous element that I see in the US that needs to stop. Absolutely. Yep. I agree wholeheartedly. It's wild. So well, you talked about, have I been to India? I was actually on my way there. I had a round the world ticket and uh, my girlfriend at the time, we basically had broken up and I got hired as a stuntman in Japan. So I ended up taking that and she carried on. So she went through Nepal and India on her own as well. I think she was on one of the buses and a hive, I mean, a swarm of bees came in and stung the shit out of her. So, uh, she's got, <laughs> she, it sounded like it was amazing, but yeah, she certainly had some, uh, you know, some, some stories to take away from that too. So, but I, I admire her courage because she, she'd planned this trip without me before we ever met. So it wasn't like I abandoned her. She, she did plan to do it on her own originally, but yeah, it's, uh, it's no small feat to travel through those countries on your own, especially as a woman. Especially as a woman, I remember showing up and this was, when was this? This was 2000, year 2000. So there wasn't cell phones. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have 
you know, it was it was when you would when you were traveling, you would rock up, you would find the the internet cafe, and then you paid for internet on a computer and you emailed people. So I remember, I mean, I, I at that point had been to a lot of third world countries already, so I knew what I was about to step into. But I just remember getting off the plane in Nepal, my heart just beating, like, okay, here we go, let's go. But it ended up being so cool because I found the internet cafe. I found a safe place to stay. I'd done researching old school way with a book. <laughs> and uh, at the internet cafe, there was a bunch of post-it notes and there was a bunch of other people traveling solo looking for people to do different treks with. And so it ended up being just the coolest experience because we would email each other and then we are all like, okay, well, anyone who wants to do this trek, let's meet up. And so it ended up being a British guy, um, no, sorry, an Irish guy, a British woman, me from Canada, an American dude, an Israeli guy. Like there ended up being six of us all traveling solo that hooked up and became this little this little hooey. <laughs> it was so fun. We hired a guide and and yep, and we walked and you know, trekking in Nepal is like hopping in a time machine and going back a hundred years. I, I think that's, you know, that side of me that just is yearns for the simplicity. It was, it was, you would see a sign next village, eight hours or not eight hours. They're never that far apart, but two and a half hours is a two and a half hour walk. <laughs> There's no phones. There was no, there was one TV in 24 days and it was like, oh my gosh, everyone huddles around it. <laughs> when you get, <laughs> when you get to the next village, it's families that have these houses that you stay in at the night, that ho hotels, but you know, really you're just getting a room in their house and the mom's cooking the meals and it's just, it's simple. It's the mountains. It's so beautiful. You know, you can't, all the negative ions that are you know, exist in just nature that make you feel good. I mean, it's incredible. I remember feeling like, oh, I could do anything. I could do this. Yeah. Pretty cool. No, I can I only imagine. Recommend that to anyone. Yeah, so yeah, she was there not long after. Her name was Zoe, but um, I think it was 2001, early 2001. So you guys must have missed each other by weeks, probably. That's so wild. Although now as a mother... Like, if my daughter was going to do that, I would be like, oh, <laughs> oh come on, mom, let me do the thing. <laughs> now, was so you met with Josh, Joshua was still bartending. Um, when did, in your marriage, how many years after meeting each other, did he become a firefighter? Gosh, well, we were together. Let's see, we were married in 2005, and he got into the department in 2011. So we kind of, we just, you know, we did things backwards, right? I told you I didn't really have a solid plan for my future and he didn't either he had broken up with a girlfriend that he was with off and on for five years and moved to Hawaii to try to figure out what he was going to do and surf and so he was bartending and so once we were like okay well that happened we got a family in a hot second <laughs> now what right and and I was like well what have you always wanted to do you know and he said I always wanted to be a firefighter and I said okay we're going to pursue that until we can't, you know, we're going to get in somewhere or we're not. And we actually left Hawaii for a minute. So we were both here for a couple of years. We met here, but our daughter was born in Canada. Um, and then we lived in Seattle for a bit. And then we saved my, we left Hawaii and then we're like, Oh my gosh, get me back to Hawaii. It's very hard to live this lifestyle and the culture and then live anywhere else, honestly. <laughs> so, so we were off Island for two years. So, 
when we were in Seattle, our son was born in Seattle and then we moved back three months later, but we were pursuing fire department um, dreams there. Even I was like, Hey, well, let's pursue it. You know, where are we supposed to be? And so he had taken his first responder course in Seattle. And my husband is the, the kind of guy that I don't know if he's just a lot more aware than other people, but I think that firefighting, the, and first responder is really a calling on your life. You just kind of know. But from the second I met my husband, things just happened around us. And he's just that guy that just knows, you know, everybody's going, oh, what do we do? That person's choking. And my husband's already over there giving the Heimlich at a pub, you know, at, like things like that have happened our whole our whole lives together. So he just finished his first responders course and we were leaving some friend's house for dinner and we pull off the the um the interstate on our exit and I didn't even know what's happening I probably just drove by like that's just you know but he's pulling off and he's like stay in the car I'm pregnant with Mac and we have our you know Indy was one at the time and before I know what's happening he's doing CPR on somebody laying on the ground and so he he kept this woman alive and and he had blood everywhere all over him. He just didn't even think about it. He just hopped in and started giving her CPR. And so it was, he got back in the car and he said, I don't know what happened to her because it was, there was some broken English being spoken, but he said, I think I smelt gunpowder. And I was like, well, that's weird. Turns out she was shot at a grow operation. He kept her alive to the hospital and she ended up passing later, but um, he had to get all this blood work testing done. And I, I say all that just to say, you know, before he got in the fire service, he was just that guy. He just hopped in and started doing what needed to get done while everyone else, myself included, goes, ah! <laughs> right. And so I don't know. I just, we just kind of knew it. And so then when we were like, okay, we're going to go back to Hawaii. He was doing some, you know, just kind of odd jobs and still pursuing fire department and and I feel like we won the lottery getting into the fire department in Hawaii. I mean, it was just totally meant to be. Um, we were super blessed by that. So we were together before he was a firefighter to answer your question, six years. So what was that transition like through the spouse's eyes? I don't think that a lot of departments and we're all, you know, learning and growing, obviously, especially the last few years with all the, the health areas that are really rearing their heads now but we realize we don't do a very good job of preparing the families for not only what our loved one who is a responder is going to be going through but what they're going to be bringing back home and what the impact is for them being gone for 24 hours or 48 hours or you know whatever's going on at the station so you know what was your introduction to the fire service life from that side yeah that's a good question I think that from a mental standpoint, I mean, I felt it was our dream we were pursuing. So I was so excited for him and I was willing to just do whatever it took. But 2011, we had, we had like a million kids. It feels like <laughs> we only had three, but we had Indiana and Mac two years exactly apart. And then Jedi was our, we call him our oops blessing. Cause I would not trade him for anything, but literally it was father's day and we were on the beach and my husband's like, let's go down the beach. And, and then oops, I was like, are you kidding me? 
Oops. I was like, it was perfect timing. I was like, happy Father's Day. You're going to be a dad again. And he's like, you don't know that. I was like, oh, I know. I knew we had two babies like sleeping in the tent. And so sure enough, a month later, confirmed pregnancy. So <laughs> just to set the stage now, right, we had a three-year-old, a one-year-old and a newborn. He wasn't in the fire service yet because Jedi was born in 2009. But when he got into the fire service, I was so excited for him because I felt like it was our dream that we were pursuing. But it was a lot on me because, you know, I had two trips to the car for, for everything. You know, at that point, Jedi was like, I think, two. But I I don't know. I, my husband came from a big family, too. And so we always once we had a family. Right. We were like, well, I guess we're just going to have four kids. Sounds good. <laughs> so. So, you know, he's getting into the fire service and he's like, all right, let's go for number four. I go, are you fucking crazy? Do you know what my day looks like? Like I have two trips to the car just to get the kids buckled and then bring all the stuff I need to bring with. So that was our whole thing. I was like, okay, well, when the kids can get into the car seat and buckle themselves, then we can talk about number four and that's why trucker was four years behind so so when he got into the fire service long-winded way to answer that question it was a transition and I did feel prepared to you know have him gone this 24 hours and we were super blessed because his first station that he ended up at after the training and stuff was probably the most family friendly or one of the most family friendly stations in Maui on Maui and so we spent Sundays there we you know they his crew was just so solid and we were just always welcome so if I was having a rough day he's like load up the kids and when I got pregnant with trucker I would show up we would show up on a Sunday and they would be like Lonnie his driver would be like here mama dukes here's the remote go lay in the AC and they would just like play with the kids all day and it was really special so it was hard at first and then you know that was a major gift that we got to be at that particular fire station and then um I think as his career kind of kept going I would say that something we were not prepared for is the emotional toll that it takes on you so I best describe it like he, he would come home after some of his really hard calls and we would just cry. You know, I think it's not the it's not the guts. It's not the gory parts of his job. He's always been that guy that just jumped in and did whatever he needed to do. It's not that it's the emotions of the family members that show up. Right. It's the the loss, like the the rawness of loss. And when you care which everybody does on some sort of level. It's just, you can't not take that home. It's so hard. So I think that's what we were not prepared for. I think having him gone and that kind of lifestyle was a little bit of an adjustment, but I feel like we managed that well. I think what has been more of a shock was all the emotional stress that you feel. Yeah, I think it's... It's hard to even understand until you get in there and it's hard to understand the impact on a loved one until you start seeing it. And then for a lot of us, we're so deep into it, it's then hard for the responder to see the impact that their emotional state is having on their family. And it's this kind of vicious circle. And sometimes it takes people from the outside looking in to say, hey, I don't know if you realize this, but this is where you're at right now. And, you know, you might want to kind of check in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then hopefully you have good people that love you enough to have those hard conversations with you, which not everybody does. So, yeah, it's, it's tough. 
but I love what you did. I, I remember listening to one of your podcasts and you shared your story, just how at, were you year 12 when you when retired I, or 14? Uh, 14 years. Yeah. 14. I just appreciated that you went, wow. I mean, that was a solid career and maybe there's something else, you know? And I, I appreciate that because I, I feel like we're kind of there. Like, I think it's a calling. It's something that you do. And, you know, I think it's the first time in, in, our lives and our married lives that we're like, well, is there something most like, I think when you get to mid forties where we're at, there's been a shift in a mindset for us. Like life is actually so short and shorter for some than others, but how do we, how do we leave the maximum amount of impact with our lives? Right which I feel like is kind of what you did. You were like, could I serve people in a different aspect than showing up and riding in a fire truck every day, right? We're kind of in this mind shift right now too. And I'm not saying he's he's quitting his career, but it's the first time that he's like, you know, I, I think if, if I walked away now, I'd be okay. He's not considering that quite yet. It's just these ideas in our mind of, you know, there are other ways that you can serve and help and show up in your community. And, and quite honestly, from a wife's perspective, if he walked away tomorrow, we have a whole lifetime of PTSD to work through. And that's apart from the tragedy that we went through with our son. That's a whole other animal, right? He's got all the work stuff and then our stuff. And, you know, you have to learn how to, to manage it well or find another way to serve people. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, I mean, it is absolutely a calling. But like you said, he was the person that jumped up when maybe other people were paralyzed by fear, shock, whatever it was. And I think a lot of people listening can relate to that. I'm sure they're the same kind of person. But being paid to do that as a profession doesn't mean that when you transition out of that, whether you retire, whether you get hurt, whether you get fired, whatever it is, means that you're not that person anymore. You were always that person. Mm -hmm. You just happen to put on a uniform that has a patch on the shoulder that says you do this for a living. And I think once you realize that you can continue serving, whether it's writing a book, podcast, training people, you know, doing mission work, whatever whatever your your thing is, I think it gives you permission then to go, look, I'm not quitting. It's not quitting. It's if you, I always tell people that if you met someone in the military that served eight, 10 years, you wouldn't be like, well, why'd you quit? You're like, wow, thank you for your service. It's amazing, you know? But for some Absolutely. reason, the fire service, EMS, law enforcement, dispatch, it's like, why did you quit? Because your timeline is based on a pension? That makes no sense whatsoever. You do it until you realize that there's a new door open that you can be of more value than riding one call at a time. And I know, you know, we, we, we kind of chatted before we started recording, I'm seeing this absolute amplification of mental health problems in the community, but also in the fire service. And I think some of these men and women that we're losing to addiction, to suicide, I feel like they felt there was nowhere to go. And of course, healing, and we're going to get to that, and, and, and all the different tools that you can use are very, very important. But one of the most crushing things that I see is organizational stress, people feeling trapped. Well, I'm in this yes. now until I'm X amount of year. No. If you've served for one year, 10 years, whatever, and you've realized that this is not bringing you happiness anyway, it's taking away from your happiness now, the transition out. There's a million things you can do with that skill set you develop as a firefighter. 
Absolutely. I love that perspective. And we ultimately are 100% responsible for the way that we choose to move forward, regardless if it's a loss of a child or um, or a switch in your career path or a different calling. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's not quitting. It's just a different calling and a different way to serve your community. And you're right. You're still the exact same person. You're still going to be the first one to do Heimlich maneuver at a bar when someone's joking or wherever, yeah, you know, exactly. I love that perspective. I always joke with my son. If Here. he even just coughs while he's eating, I'm, I look at him and go, do you want me to Heimlich you? I'll Heimlich you right now <laughs> in front of all these people. <laughs> oh my gosh. So we, so we, we just like to mess with our kids. We have a lot of fun. Um, but when we were recently in Montana, we bought Joshua and Jed. I got the same matching shirts. It's the best shirt I've ever had. I wish I had one of my, I wish I had it in an office so I could show you, but we saw it. And I was like, Oh my God, that's so good. So it's a guy, he's riding a bear that's rearing up, holding a beer in his hand. And it says safety third. <laughs> 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 and so we joke all the time. Like my daughter is going to, to, um, work this morning. I didn't say it this morning, but we often say it. We're like, Sa- safety third, uh, drive fast, take chances. Like we're just taking the test <laughs> totally, but it's hilarious, right? Like safety third. First, you will drink a beer while riding a bear, and then we'll think about safety. I don't know. It's just funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue to something I wanted yeah. to ask you before we get to, to Trucker's journey specifically. When Joshua enters the fire service and we start to see the things that we see, I know as a parent that I had to fight extremely hard to wrap my child in bubble wrap and not let him do anything because of the tragedy I saw in that uniform. And that is such a paradox that you have to navigate to raise them and educate them on what can potentially hurt them but not scare them to death and paralyze them. We were just starting the conversation talking about spearfishing and hunting and all this stuff. Clearly, you guys are in a different space now. When you had young children and he was in that profession early on, did that kind of permeate? Did he find that kind of hypervigilance, you know, seeping into parenting or had you managed to maintain safety third the whole time? Honestly, we've kind of always been safety third, although now that they're teenagers and get it, it's like our running family joke. But my husband's always done a really good job of of not limiting our kids' beliefs, which I love because I think that there is the propensity to bubble wrap them. You're absolutely right. Just with all the death and tragedy that firefighters and first responders in general see. But he's always been like, you want to surf big waves? Come on. I'm right there with you. Let's go uh, to as far as you can go, which I love because I feel as a mother, it's almost easier to be like, we'll be careful. We'll be careful. We'll be safe. We'll don't do that. But my husband's like, if that guy can do it, you can do it. And he's always kind of lived his life like that. Like he he'll surf the biggest waves. He'll drop the biggest cliff on a snowboard. Like he just he lives like that. So I appreciate that dad dude perspective and that's why I think it's so important to have a mother and a father present when you can because we offer such different you know I'm the I'm the soft one he's the he's the hammer in our family in all aspects you know he he expects a lot from our kids and he doesn't if he says something he means it versus I always tell my husband I always joke with him like nothing can happen to you the kids will rule me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They'll be riding bears, drinking beers if you're gone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, and that's not entirely true, but I credit people are always 
complimenting us on our kids and our relationship that we have with our kids. And I believe it's because their dad is very hard on them. But he's also hard on them with really big love. And he also doesn't limit their abilities. You know, the reason why my 14 year old, he just turned 15. But when he was 14, a couple months ago, he went into the gulch by himself. We made him take a radio, right? Things can happen hunting. You're hunting wild boars and deers. But he takes a radio into the gulch by himself and his bow. And 45 minutes later, he's like one dope down. He, he quartered out the animal in the gulch, hiked it out, processed the whole thing from start to finish. So when you're thinking about processing an animal, first of all, crossbow is a lethal weapon. It could be potentially a lethal weapon. And then you process the animal with really sharp knives, right? So you there's a big level of <laughs> trust, number one, and also safety education. You obviously don't just give a kid who has not been doing it since he was eight a crossbow and a bunch of sharp knives and say go get your own deer son right so um yeah I think we've always been more on the safety third side definitely and I've never been a sort of rush to the doctor for every kind of thing mom ever and I don't have anything against moms who do that but um yeah I just I I I think that our bodies are so incredible and that they're made to heal so we really kind of only doctor up for emergency <laughs> medical stuff safety third <laughs> yeah. well I mean it's such a great perspective and I try to kind of ride that line with my son as well I mean he's been snowboarding and all, you know all kinds of stuff when he was very he went skiing actually excuse me not snowboarding skiing when he was four years old and was off like you know taking the button lift button lift and, and slaloming on his own and you know he's been jiu-jitsu and all these things and, and it's controlled but you're slowly again pushing the walls out of, of the trust with them and their own abilities because you can scare the hell out of a kid too you know you just say right let's let's jump off this uh this mountain on the snowboard you're three yeah you're never going to snowboard again so it's, yes it's absolutely brilliant to hear <laughs> there's a line that you're continually juggling that exactly. is for sure well, speaking of not doctoring up, let's walk through. So you waited for a while before you had trucker number four. So walk me through, you know, what made you decide when you did and then, you know, his first couple of years and then, you know, just feel free to just carry on through there. Yeah, I I think, you know, the kids could all buckle and I was like, all right, Joshua was in the fire department and we were like, let's try. And, and I guess because our experience with Jedi was like, one time we're pregnant, I guess I was like, well, we're going to make out tonight and we're going to have a baby in nine months. And then <laughs> it didn't actually happen like that. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and all of our kids were kind of conceived like that, right? Indiana was a oops blessing as well. Mac was the only, Mac and Trucker were the only ones like truly that we planned. Um, so I just thought it would be, you know, tonight we'll get it done and nine months we'll have a baby. And then it, it we had to try a little bit and and that was fine. It was fun. That was a really fun pregnancy because the kids were a little bit older. So when Trucker was born, Indiana was six, Mac was four, and Jedi was three. No, they were four, five, and seven. Sorry, my apologies. Four, five, and seven. So they got to experience, you know, Trucker growing in my belly. And then when he was born and and they all just loved him, he was all of our babies. And he was always a really good baby. All four of mine were super good babies. I always tell new moms because people are just funny and they like to say things and they're like, oh, you had a good baby. Wait till your next one. I was like, do not receive 
that you do not have to do that <laughs> i had four brilliant babies right people just say funny things and so i had four great babies and even up until you know the time when he got sick he was great you know he wasn't fussy the only you know the reason why we found his cancer even was he was a little bit fussier but he was 19 months old so he couldn't talk yet he was doing some signs but he was also cutting molars so I'm like well that's pretty normal they spike fevers when they have molars and and um it wasn't until he started getting a, a little lethargic so he would just follow me around and then lay on the floor and look at me wherever I was and I was like oh little buddy and he was getting fevers but I would give him kids Tylenol or whatever and it would go away and then it, would, it just kind of kept coming back. And then he started looking kind of gray. And I dropped the big kids off at school one day and had stopped by my mom's. My mom lives on the other side of the island where the kids' school was. And she started just kind of feeling in his belly. And she was like, honey, come and feel this. And I walked over and I, I thought I was touching his ribs, but his ribs were two inches above. And I was like, Ooh, that is not good. So of course we go to the doctor and he kind of had a little bit of a black eye. And the doctor was like, I'm glad you came in. You know, I definitely feel something there. We're going to do some more tests. How did he get a black eye? And I said, that's so interesting. You're asking that. I don't remember. I mean, a black eye at a year and a half would be a big cry, right? I was like, nothing happened. He didn't run into the table. It didn't, it wasn't a sibling thing. I don't know. It just kind of showed up. And now I know that that is one of the signs for neuroblastoma. And so she kind of knew and Joshua had just, he'd been on the mainland at, at a funeral and he was flying home that day. And she, the doctor said, okay, you have to go to this other, the other center and have, you know, I want an ultrasound done and more labs. And we were there for forever. They weren't letting us leave. And so when I called, when Joshua called and he said, Hey, I'm, where are you? Come pick me up. I, I'm at the airport. And I was like, I'm at the doctor's office you know, we found something in trucker's belly and we're doing all these tests and it was just all so surreal. I kept feeling as if they were going to come in and say, he has some weird stomach infection. Here's your antibiotics and go home. Right. But when I told Joshua, Joshua was like, Oh, that's not good. They're not, they're not letting you leave. Like they want more tests. And so they finally come in and the doctor's like, he, his hemoglobin in his blood count is so low that he can't even fly. And we don't have extensive pediatrics on Maui. All of that is done on Oahu, a neighboring island. So they said that he has to, you guys have to fly to Oahu ASAP, but he can't even fly right now because his hemoglobin blood count is so low. So you need to go straight to the hospital to have a blood transfusion tonight and then head out tomorrow. So I, I don't even know. Um, even then I wasn't thinking cancer. Like I just didn't, it, I didn't even compute it. It's so surreal that you're 19 month old. You don't put it all together. And even the next day when we went, we got to Oahu and, and the nurses were like, all right, the oncologist is going to come see you. The pediatric oncologist. I didn't even know what it was. I just never, you know, and my husband's like, honey, it's a cancer doctor. And I was like, what? It, it just, it's so shocking to have, to just go from one speed dropping your kids off at school to your baby might have cancer to your baby does have cancer. It's either this cancer or this one. And you hope that it's this one because this one's a lot worse, right? And every time we got this or this, we always got the worst diagnosis. Like it just kept going down. And so, yeah, it was just a total shock to 
the system, to our family, to our lives. It's really surreal, but it happened. <laughs> well, I can imagine as well when you've had three, you know, air quotes, healthy children. There's, I remember think, thinking the same thing. My, a lot of my friends' parents got divorced and I got to 18. And I was like, oh, they're going to be married forever then. And then they got divorced. And it was, and so it must have been not complacency because you can't call it complacent to not think that your child might have cancer, but you know, almost like that sense of security that you've, you've had multiple healthy children. Okay. This is going to be another one. So how did you process that initial diagnosis and how did you, start involving the children in, in what was going on? If I'm really honest, James, I'm still processing all of it. That's tough, right? So our children, the other children, we were just reeling in this whole, all of a sudden, pediatric cancer world. And and it all happened. I'll never forget. It all happened. It was the week before Thanksgiving. So we're at the hospital on Monday. They're doing all these tests. They're like, we're going to do his bio. They rushed his biopsy surgery to figure out what kind of cancer it was. And then the whole world shut down or the, all of America shut down to celebrate Thanksgiving. So we're waiting super extra long to find out what kind of cancer our baby had. It was like, it makes me want to physically vomit <laughs> just thinking about it because it's that traumatic, right? So we had our kids come over. We included our kids as much as we could and for their limited understanding of, you know, what was happening. Um, we just, at that point, we were like, we just want to be together. I mean, we didn't know. Was his truck, were we going to lose him right away? And after his biopsy surgery, so I think his, his cancer had been obviously progressing at whatever rate it was up until that point. But after the biopsy surgery, and if you've known anyone else who, who fights cancer, it's like surgery weakens your whole immune system. So after his initial biopsy surgery to find out what kind of cancer was, he blew up. He was like, I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures, but his belly was so distended, like his cancer just got angry, you know, and all these cells just, you know, and, and his eye went super black and we were like, are we going to lose him? Like we thought that it might be then that we would lose him. And um, I think when you're in the moment you don't have time to process anything, you're just going. You're just making decisions that feel the best for you and your family in that moment. That's all you have. I remember. I hope I answered. No, you did. And I hope I, I answered that question. When you said, you know, did, did I see pictures? I remember I can see it clearly in my head of him with that pain on his face and his belly distended. And there's that one vein that you can see kind of poking out. And anyone who's got a heart, but certainly anyone who's a parent, it's just one of the most heartbreaking things. And, you know, know. you just, you know, as, as you wrote about in the book, you know, you, I've, I've watched my son just go through colic and go through, you know, fevers, like really, really mild, you know, every kid's going to go through it type things and see the pain on his face and just want to take that pain from him. So I can only, uh, yeah. I can't imagine as, as we, you know, as you touch on the book too, but to, to watch your child suffer like that for two and a half years, I mean, the, the drain on your family must have been absolutely immense. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, it really, really was. I was talking to, um, I just returned from a girl's trip in Utah and I, a friend that I was talking with had just recently lost her mom. And so I gave her a book and, and I was saying, I was like, the first chapter of this book is really hard. 
it's really hard because I can't share my story and it not be hard. And if you, I'm like, you're probably going to cry. And if you don't cry or that doesn't evoke some kind of feelings in you, then maybe don't follow me or maybe we shouldn't be friends because it's so gut-wrenching, right? But I hope what I portrayed in my book and, and my heart is, is that we can go through really, really, really hard things, like harder than you ever thought possible. And you can still have joy. You can still have hope for a future. You can still in, enjoy life. And I think people ask me this all the time or, or recently, you know, why there's kids that get cancer every day. Why did the world fall in love with Trucker? Why, what, you know, what was different about him? And I'm like, I don't know. I think that the difference that I see is that we were willing to be vulnerable and share. And part of the reason we felt compelled to share from the beginning was just because of that. It could happen to anyone. We all just feel like we're immune to these big life tragedies, but we're just living our life and out of freaking nowhere, our 19 month old baby who can't even talk has one of the worst cancers that kids can have and this happens every single day so um I felt we felt compelled to share and then I think as you know he learned to talk and he kind of stepped into his little toddler character he just had this like, he just knew he was a big deal like he had VIP treatment his whole time <laughs> he walked in that kid had a presence you know, he did. He's like, well, what, what, what are these guys going to do for me today? <laughs> you know, he didn't understand why it was just his life. He just had a big presence. And I think that that is something that I tried to do. And I feel that we as a family did really well was create memories. Like we're like, well, now we have this perspective that we don't know how many more memories that we actually will be able to make together. So let's go big. <laughs> what can we do? Right. And every moment he felt good. We just made it count. And maybe we were going to get another 60 years with him, but you know, our initial diagnosis was a 30% chance that he's going to live for five years. I was like, what? 30% chance. And it's going to be mostly in the hospitals and he's going to feel like shit his whole life. Whoa. That's a big reality check, right? So I think another thing that happened in that time and why we ended up in New York was I started researching right away, right? Well, how can I help his body? And I remember I remember asking the doctor, well, what should I feed him? And the doctor was like, anything, a calorie is a calorie. And I was like, mm. even in my like limited knowledge of nutrition at that time, I was like, so you're telling me that if I feed him a small French fries from McDonald's or half an avocado, that that's doing the same thing for his body? No. French fries aren't even real food. They can like live in your car for a week and you could still eat them if you would dare. And an avocado is chock full of healthy nutrients and fats, right? So I just remembered like it just didn't, I was like, that doesn't feel right. I'm not just going to feed him crap all day. And so that sparked my journey of, you know, holistic learning and well, what are the things that I can do to help his body recover, not just from cancer, but also from all the toxicity of all the treatments. And I had been consulting other hospitals, I wanted to see like, the different hospitals have different protocols, you just really are just in a new world learning a new language. And most hospitals across the nation, it's the exact same protocol. So here's your diagnosis. 
here you go, line them up. This works, you go this path, this works, you go this path. And I remember thinking, this is so crazy. You're not looking at him individually, like he's just another number and none of this is guaranteed to work. It's actually called an experiment. Like they have, to me, I'm like, you have no idea what you're doing. You're experimenting on my child? And they are, it's just how it is. But anyway, one of the reasons we ended up in New York was because when I called Sloan Kettering, they had a team of five doctors that specialized in neuroblastoma and they did a slightly different protocol. And they did, I felt looked at kids a little more individually. And yes, they did some of the same things, but they didn't do the same things to every kid. They did take a more of an individual approach. And so I was like, we need to go there. We got to give him the best possible running chance that we can. He already has all these odds stacked against him. And so that's why we ended up in New York. So we had five months, almost five months of treatment in Oahu. And then we transferred care to Sloan Kettering, which is how we end up getting treatment on the East Coast when we live in Hawaii. Now this, when I talk about this topic, it's all well and good for me to sit here seemingly healthy at the moment and talk about this, you know, not knowing how it actually react if I got the diagnosis myself. However, having that abject, objective view of not having a diagnosis, I struggle as someone in the medical community to understand how destroying the entire body with chemicals or radiation, fingers crossed, let's hope the good cells come back, is the best that we can do in 2022. And I really I feel like, you know, the nutritional side, the you know, meditation and the time in nature and the even something you know, like the some of the the um, THC and CBD and all these more holistic approaches. Even if God forbid this, the you know the child or the or the adult didn't survive, at least their quality of life would be a lot better. Because I see chemo yes. kill people. I see chemo yeah. destroy the human body. Without the other side now, and with having been on this grieving journey that you're on. Yeah. Not, as you said, you know, even if you can't change the past, but what is your perspective on that element of cancer research, of cancer treatment? And can do you think that we can do it a little differently? Well, that's a really great question. Um, it's such a personal journey. And I have people coming to me all the time. Actually, there was another little girl on Maui just diagnosed with neuroblastoma the other day. And she's two and she has kind of the same diagnosis as trucker. So she's just coming to me for any sort of wisdom that I can hand off to her. And I was like, mama, here's my advice. You know, your baby best, know your options, consulting hospitals everywhere else. It's free. Know your options and you have to figure it out for you. I will say this. When we were in New York, our walk from the Ronald McDonald house to to the to Sloan Kettering had a health food store in between and we stopped there every day and trucker ate things like tuna and seaweed and green smoothies and and um we never ordered the hospital food because the hospital food is all just pizza it's I get what they're trying to do they're trying to give kids like the foods that they want but it's highly processed non-organic chicken fingers it's pizza it's all these things that are just reverted to carbs and sugars and inflammation in your body which is the opposite of what we should be trying to do so there was a few uh of his nps his nurse 
practitioners that noticed, right? Well, they always kind of were like, what's trucker eating today? Because they kind of thought it was hilarious that he ate so healthy. But they also noticed that he recovered a lot quicker from most of his treatments. Well, hello, that makes sense, right? So every afternoon at two, the candy cart came around for these kids. And I remember one day sitting in the life, the they have like a life play center. I can't remember what the terminology is that they use, but it's like a, basically like a kid's playroom in the middle of the hospital when the kids feel good they can go in and there's video games and all kinds of like play kitchens and games and everything where they can go and I remember sitting there one day and the candy cart comes around and so just get the visual of this scene okay there's all these moms we're all just like we look so wiped out moms and dads I shouldn't just say moms we're just so drained right we're living watching our child fight cancer kids are playing bald kids running to the bathroom, puking, coming out, eating candy. You're like, oh my gosh. It's just, to me, it was like, (laughs) so we're feeding them. We're feeding their cancer as we poison them. Hmm. The picture in my mind, I'll just never forget the way that I felt. And honestly, here's my heart of heart. I'm not going to say, you know, don't do conventional treatment or whatever. Actually, as a kid, you don't even have an option. As an adult, I might not choose to to go that route. But as a kid, you don't have an option. My heart is this, knowing all that I know now, and I really believe with all our heart that our bodies were made to heal, but they need the right ingredients. What if we integrated the therapies? Like, what if at Sloan Kettering, they served these kids organic, like nutrient-dense meals? What if they taught them about detox? Our livers need help processing just the normal uh, toxins of life, let alone being blasted with all of this toxic treatments and medication, all the heavy metals in their liver. What if we integrated the therapies like, okay, well, what if we don't have an option? So let's do these. But then what if we also did castor oil packs in between treatments to help their livers and their bodies and fed them real food? What if we would be giving them the best running shot for their bodies to heal and to move forward? But instead, it's kind of frowned upon or just I don't know if it's frowned upon, but there's really a lack of knowledge with any of it. They don't learn any of that. Right. It's wild to me. It's like it's such a no brainer. But I remember So we made a decision and we decided to stop his treatment. So it was, you know, two and a half years in, he, he was starting to limp and I was like, okay, well, that's not good because his scans had never been clear. We're already doing all this immunotherapy. You know, he was feeling pretty good for the most part, except for treatment weeks and he started limping. So we do a scan and his, um, he always had his, his cancer had metastasized to his bone marrow and his bones. So there was a spot lighting up more on his leg. And I was like, so we were meant to come home, which was already, as you know, super exhausting to, you know, a year and a half trucker. And I basically were living in New York, traveling back and forth when we could, which is a whole thing in itself. It's a 10 hour trip one way. Um, Even if it was for six days, we just would come home and go back and the kids, Joshua and the kids would come when they can, but it already had been a year and a half of us like living in New York basically. And I remember looking at the doctor and she said, okay, so he, he'll be here for radiation next week, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, Dr. Basu, we're not coming back. We're going home. And she was like, I'm going to cry thinking about it. And she was like, okay. And she was like, are you sure you want to do that? And I was like, I won't let his whole life 
be in a hospital. I just won't. I was like, we're at the best place in the world for this type of cancer. And you have some cutting edge things, cutting edge experiments that you're doing. And I go, and you're guessing. And she's like, I honestly can't disagree with you, right? Because they don't know what works, what doesn't. And what I was seeing, honestly, James, was these families that just kept holding out hope for the next treatment and the next this. And in the meantime, they're marriages are falling apart. Their teenage kids are, you know, on drugs and doing other, like, it's so hard on the family dynamic. And, and in the end, the kids end up, most of the kids end up dying. Anyway, it's so tragic and so sad, but I was like, I just won't let that be his life. I'm going to go home. And Joshua and I were on the same page. I can't imagine making that choice, you know, if, if we weren't, and not a lot of families do make that choice. And there is no judgment. This is a, it's such a personal path and it was just for us we were like we're going to trust god for the timing of his life we're going to bring him home we're going to do the best that we can nutritionally we're going to be consulting you know and we're going to pray for a miracle and we're going to enjoy the shit out of each other and that's what we did you know that's what we did so <laughs> which is pretty wild but we had him at home for another another 5 5 months we came we flew home the beginning of october and he passed march 3rd so well the impact that little boy had on the world was incredible i mean i there i am in you know orlando florida and i i forget how it even came across but i know it was through social media you'd end up um interacting with pip in new jersey with my friend matt fiorenza in anaheim california um bobby and fdmy so just talk to me about that from your family as you said having cancer the whole family mm. dealing with that how did the fire service become involved? And then talk to me about the magnitude because I, I watched the memorial service and I watched the paddle out and the whole world was watching. And as tragic as the fact that we are watching a funeral for a little boy that didn't even make it to four years old, the fact that that diagnosis brought all these communities together is, is mind blowing. And it, and it, it, it does bring some positivity to what is otherwise such a tragic event. Yeah. Yeah. I love our relationship with just, I love the fire family, you know, the fire family every, everywhere rallied from day one. Uh, the firefighters on Maui, actually our really dear friend, um, Jeff Robeson, he went around to all the fire stations when Trucker was first diagnosed. He was actually, Josh was, I can't remember. I think Lonnie was the driver. So he was just his senior, his first senior hoseman. He went around to all the fire stations and it wasn't an option. He was like, what day are you working for Dukes? What day are you working for Dukes? What day are you working for Dukes? And so six months, Joshua had a shift covered. I know he talks about that too a lot. Just the gratitude we felt for that time that we got together is you will never, I mean, we could never express what happened that did for us or how grateful we are. But um, then from then, you know, sharing we had in the beginning in the hospital, we had, you know, firefighters from all over the world, England, Japan, sending pictures just to try to encourage him. And, and I, I think because trucker was born and, you know, was raised in Joshua's fire station. I mean, we have pictures of him bathing in the fire firehouse sink that like we just spent so much time there that that was familiar to him. And it made him, it was like his dad, you know, it, everything fire was his dad. And so I think that's what it stems from. But even in the hospital, we would see a 
fire fire truck, we would see him going by and it was the only thing when he was really, really sick that kind of lit him up, like just big eyes, you know? And so when we first got to New York City, I used to tell him that every single fire truck was for him. I was like, buddy, they got the sirens on for you. And he was like, yeah, boys, like he would just <laughs> light up, you know? And, and if you've been in New York, you know how many sirens go by. The fire trucks are constantly going by. So um, it was really special. And then one night we were walking back to the Ronald McDonald house from the health food store. And there was a legit call at the Ronald McDonald house that night. So there was already two engines there and whoever the volunteers were cooking dinner that night lit the chicken on fire. <laughs> so we're walking across the street and the third engine pulls up right in front of us and parks. And we didn't know that the call was actually at the Ronald McDonald house yet. We were just trying to walk home. And, and so truckers face like, <gasps> and so I always tell my, my dear friend now Captain Jim that it was a scene it was like a scene out of a movie when we met him because he's this big burly bald New York captain and he gets out of the truck and and he starts walking and his boys get out of the truck and they're walking behind him and and we're on the corner and he starts walking towards it but he looked and he sees trucker and he he just turned. He did. It didn't even skip a beat. He's walking towards the fire. He looked. He saw a trucker. Turned. Walked right towards trucker and put out his arms as if they did just show up for us. And trucker at the time, barely too, was hardly talking. Didn't go to anyone but me. Was going through some heavy chemo. Was bald as a bat and went right to him like they were old friends. And I was like, ooh, chicken skin. I was like, those are the people that I always wanted to pay attention to because Trucker didn't really go to anybody but me then. And so we just had this moment. We met him and and the the fire was squashed. I mean, it was like such a, you know, little mini call. And so they, all the boys let him play on the fire truck and, and, and we just, you know, talked story with the guys through it. And Captain Jim's like, well, I was recently promoted to captain and I'm kind of rotating stations, but I'm up on... 85th, 85th or 86th, which ended up becoming Trucker's Firehouse. But he's like, just stop by anytime. And I was like, okay, well, we will. And a couple weeks later, Joshua flew in just for four, on his four off, he flew out. He got one shift covered. So it was just like a super quick trip. But we had this, whenever we would fly to New York, we had this thing like, we're not just going to bed. We're going to send it. We're going to just try to be on the time frame where we're at. So we, we couldn't just go and sit in a room because you'd fall asleep. You'd just basically miss a night's sleep. So he's like, well, let's go for a walk. And I go, well, let's go walk to that fire station because that was just like such a beautiful moment. Let's go see if if that captain's there. And it was such an organic, beautiful whole experience how our relationship with the FDNY came about because we stopped by that day and the guy who answered the door, uh, I said, hey, we met uh, this guy. I had the picture. I didn't even know his name then. <laughs> I was like, we met this guy. And he said to stop by any time and he was like oh yeah he's like he's like captain grismer he's not in right now but come on in check out the fire trucks and so that that was our friend eugene and so eugene let trucker climb on the trucks and then you know they run calls like all day long in new york and so they got a call and so he had to pull trucker out of the fire truck and trucker started crying like i want to get out of the fire truck and so eugene <laughs> was like like he just loved he just loved fire trucks he just loved being around the boys and and so as Eugene's pulling out of the fire truck, he's yelling to the, the station guy at the front. I can't remember. It was on the, on the engine, like, forget So it was just so funny. So we left and then I didn't think that they would call or whatever. But of course, I get a call, you know, two weeks later. And he's like, hey, Sean, we're having a big, you know, Fourth of July thing at the station. And we would love it if you and Trucker could come. And 
I was like, okay, I'm in New York by myself at this point. Joshua's back on in Hawaii. And so I, I like to tell the story that every time we went and visited a firehouse, I watched a different grown man fall in love with trucker. So the first time we went was Eugene, right? Captain Jim on the corner, then Eugene, then like other just kind of randoms. And then when we went for July 4th, it was Cisco, which is like, he's just such a gem of a human, but he has a daughter the same age as Trucker. So when he saw Trucker, he just like loved him. And he was like, you want to go play bath? Like they just were gone. So it was, and they just had this like super sweet bond. And then he just became Trucker's little like best friend. I They just had the sweetest relationship and Cisco would just play with them for hours. They would just sit there and play fire trucks. And, you know, it was just really sweet. And then you know, and then Lieutenant Bobby, we met him on the street um, several weeks after that. And he and Lieutenant Bobby does a ton of uh, give back work with the Ronald McDonald house. He's always showing up with fire trucks and Santa Claus. And he's just such a gem of a human. And we met him and he was like, well, I know this captain that's on a fireboat. Would Trucker want to go on the fireboat? And I was like, that would be awesome. And so then we went on the fireboat and we met Captain Steve, who was like, like these men are my family. I mean, if I called any one of them on any given day I mean I would do anything for them they would do anything for me we just ended up spending so much time together they all fell in love with trucker um Captain Steve he's like what do you need while you're here and I was like just to get out of the city you know I live in the 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 opposite worlds from the country where I live in Maui and there's roosters out my window every morning to uh Upper East Side Manhattan it's like (laughs) opposite your worlds couldn't be more opposite. I used to say it's a 10 hour flight, but it all, it almost feels like it should be three days, how different the worlds are. Right. Um, So captain Steve would be like, what do you need? And I was like, just to get out of the city. And he's like, I got you. So FDNY van would come and pick up me and my mom, or I always kind of had people rotating with me to just kind of help be my PA. We called it my, my personal assistant. And and we would go out to his house in the country and his family just welcomed us in. And it was just, you know, they all just became family, like whatever we needed. And Trucker taught them all how to throw the shaka. And I have a couple stories I want to share with you because they just make my heart really happy. But one time Indiana was holding Trucker. We heard we heard the fire engine. We heard the sound like they were on a call. And Trucker was always like, yeah, boys. And so Indiana ran to the corner to see if they knew which engine it was in the team any of the guys and and all I saw was Indiana and Trucker standing on the corner and then I saw the fire truck go by kind of slowed down and then I saw all these hands out the window throwing shakas <laughs> so good and then another time my mom and I had just flown back and it was right around Trucker's third birthday and we were at a restaurant for dinner and and we didn't hear the fire trucks go by, which is super weird. But when we walked out, we were like, wow, there's like six fire trucks right there, like a block and a half up. So something's going on. So we're like, well, let's just walk up and see if we know any of the boys. And so we walk up and there's one guy that we hadn't met before. And he was kind of just stopping the traffic, right? There was a fire up on whatever floor it was. And so he was like, we're not letting people walk by. And and trucker starts crying, like, those are my boys. Like, this is my boys. And <laughs> me and my mom are kind of laughing, right? We're like, sorry, he's, you know, he's a firefighter. And, and he's like, oh, okay, sure. And so we turn around, we start walking away. Trucker's super bummed because he can't get close to his boys. And and as all the fire trucks, like the fire squash or whatever, all, as all the fire trucks start driving away, one of the drivers looks and he's like, it's Trucker. They pull over. So all these trucks start pulling over because they <laughs> recognized him. 
it was so great and then the guy who stopped us was like this is trucker i had no idea i'm like it's totally fine it's totally fine but i was like oh man it was so good all the firehouses on the upper east side knew him and they knew him well they loved him well that's so good to hear and i think it (laughs) illustrates what i've seen for most you know of of, certainly the the good cohesive crews and the good departments is I would consider the men and women in the fire service some of the best parents I've ever seen, some of the greatest humans I've ever seen. And what is so sad, I don't know if you've been exposed to this, is I've watched all the things that we kind of touched on before we started recording, all the elements that, you know, the negative side of the job, whether it's the sleep deprivation and the organizational stress and, you know, all these the things that we're actually exposed to start to break down that family dynamic and 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 change these compassionate kind men and women sometimes to burned out or god forbid even you know addiction and suicide so and sadly because we're trying to bring light to this absolute crisis that we're in the moment of mental health that conversation is kind of lost but that is what you know a healthy firehouse looks like there's some of the greatest human beings on the planet working in our firehouses around the country so i'm so glad that trucker got to experience that i know yeah it was really really special i mean i don't i can't even tell you i I remember one time we we were walking and so trucker had this he had this like beautiful mimic in between me and joshua so he wanted to push a baby because i was always pushing him in a stroller i mean he's three right so he had his baby his baby always had the same band-aids on as him. So he had, after his second brain surgery, he had band-aids on his head. And so his baby had band-aids on his head. So he had a pink stroller, a uh, baby with band-aids on his head. He had half turnouts from Maui because Maui and New York both swore him in as honorary firefighters. So we wore the black top, which is New York, and the tan bottoms, which was Hawaii, and he would walk his baby down the street of New York. And so, I mean, it was hilarious. But I remember one time Lieutenant Bobby's truck pulled up and they're like, you want to ride? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we hop in, we throw all the truckers, strollers, all my stroller, all our things are on the way to the hospital. We get to the hospital, we get out, and some lady's like, how do you make them do that? I was like, I don't <laughs> make them do anything. My son just happens to be a firefighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny, but yeah, very, very special. And then when he passed, 24 of them came to Maui, and, and you, you watched the service online, but he had full honors as a fallen firefighter when he died. It was so special it was so so special the love in the room that day was so thick it was tangible it was just it was the most beautiful way to honor someone that i could have ever imagined yeah well i mean like i said you live stream quite a lot of the the events and i was sobbing sobbing my Mm. eyes out you know from from here in florida joshua told me his story of obviously you know Trucker's last few hours, another friend of mine, firefighter Stephen Kibler, told me when when his little boy passed away, what were those last few days like as far as expectations? And talk to me because you did get to hold him, you know, when he when he took his last breath. Yeah. Um, honestly, at that point, we were we never stopped hoping for a miracle. And we hoped that, you know, we were wrong, but we could see his body deteriorating and and uh, and there was a part of us that we were just praying, like, God, just give him a good death, right? Joshua was trying to prepare me as much as he could. Like, death is really can be really hard, like people gasping for air and 
and they're scared. And so at that point we were like, okay, God, we're never going to give up on a miracle, but if now is his time, then would you just please give him a, a good death? And if you've ever watched someone die of cancer, it's so, it can be so slow and so painful. And literally like the cancer just starves their body. It takes all the nutrients and all the things. And it's so hard, it's so hard to watch someone you love be like that. It was, he was in a lot of pain at the end. That was also really hard. And so um, I, I feel like our prayers were honored and he had a good death. I mean, that's really hard as a mom talking about a three-year-old, but he wanted to have a bath. And I think we spent a lot of time in the bath together because the water, the weightlessness of the water, I think just helped take away a little bit of the pain that he was feeling. And, um, and he got out of the bath and that was, that was it. He, he, he kind of, he puked up black blood. Um, which is just his body, right? His body's just, I'm not, I'm done. I'm not working anymore. And, and I was able to hold him and it was just, it was actually really beautiful because it was a good death, which I know seems so fucked up because it's just, those things don't go together. A good death in your three-year-old, right? It's like so contradictory, contradictory, (laughs) can't even say the word, but, um, but it was, it was actually, he had a good death. That was a gift. And after we had this time as a family where, you know, we had uh, the school, the school brought the big kids home. Sorry, my notifications aren't turned off for some reason. I thought I did, but the big kids got brought home from school. They weren't here. Joshua wasn't here, which was really, really, really hard on him. But um, I told him, I think maybe this was the one death that you couldn't handle. For some reason, God knew that I was going to be there and that you weren't. And there must be some sort of, you know, reason for that. I think that was really, really hard on him. Um, But we gathered the family all together and then we kind of gave him back to God. I think with that perspective and we have a big faith in our family that there's a bigger purpose in all this and, and, you know, and in a weird sort of way, it ties back into safety third, you know, because I believe there's a scripture that says that all of our days are allotted in the book of life before we even live here. And to me, there's really big peace there because I did everything that I could do to save his life, but it wasn't really my life to save. All of us are living on borrowed time and none of us are walking away, <laughs> you know? And so, um, after he passed, we all kind of gathered together and we, you know, we prayed and we sang some worship songs and we gave them back to God. And it was super beautiful. It was, a, it was beautiful. Still very hard. <laughs> Doesn't take away that it's hard. It's not what we had hoped for, but, um, but that's what we did. <laughs> well, you said about um, seeing someone dying of cancer. Now, this is the other side of you know a a human lifespan spectrum my grandmother's probably going to pass any day now actually they the the hospital just or the the care home just skyped me so i just got to speak to her for a moment um which is incredible but my grandfather her husband was just so healthy right up until he was 99 and then got this most aggressive cancer that normally if you're not if you're that old wouldn't even go through you because your metabolism would be so slow he was so damn healthy that it went through him and yeah, his his last few moments were awful. He was jaundiced, he looked like a Simpson character, and he fought for every breath. So 
as ironic as it is, I know exactly what you're talking about because as, and I think you're right, you know, Josh, Joshua, excuse me, has seen so much wearing his uniform. There, there kind of is a mercy the last time, you know, seeing Trucker that he was still able to talk to his father and hug his father. So, you know, I, I, I see sense in both of what you said as tragic and as hard as it is to compute those things. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of truth and, you know, higher power elements to both of those things. Yeah. 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 And there it is, right? The fragility of life just staring you in the face. You can't look away. You're just staring it down. <laughs> so I think that maybe even without knowing it, safety third, like that's just kind of where we're at. I won't live my life in fear of something happening because the truth is is that none of us are promised a single moment it's all a gift <laughs> so so this is my mission now right to change this conversation around death and how hard it is not negating from the feelings because i think all the feelings and emotions that come with death are important and relevant but just not staying there right not staying in the hard emotions feeling them but then still being grateful for the time that you still get here. Because if you think about the existence of humans, there's another scripture that I love. It says, your life on earth is literally like the drop of dew in the morning. It's there and then it's gone. So unless you, you know, write a book or I don't know, lead a war or something like think about this, even three generations from now, nobody even knows who you are. Our lives are so I don't want to say insignificant, that's not the right word, but our lives are so small in the scheme of life in general, right? So I think that we were also, we're wired to be very tactile. So our time and how we celebrate life and how we just kind of have this mindset that we're all just going to fall asleep in our 90s and not wake up is actually statistically how so few of us go. So I'm going to live my life in fear. I'm going to enjoy the shit out of it. I, I don't even know if I'll wake up tomorrow, right? Exactly. I always tell my son, he's, you know, worries about my dog being older. I'm like, remember, I might die first. And he looks right. at me like, but it's true. Like, none of us have promised anything. And, you know, she might be at my funeral for all you know. I hope not. It'd be right. nice for us to both live for another 100 years. But I agree with you completely. And you listen to a lot of the the warriors, the ancient, you know, warriors. There's always that common theme. Once you accept that you're already dead, that's where true courage comes from. And you can apply that on the battlefield right. or just in life. Right? I know. Uh there's a chapter in my book, I know, but just, I, I feel like what, what if we just every single human woke up every day and didn't reach for our phone, but instead we're just like, thank you, whoever you're thanking, <laughs> thank you that I get this day, I get one more day, sweet. How would that change our perspective, right? If we're looking at all the time that we have as a gift, would that change the way that you communicate? Would it change the way that you have compassion or grace for the guy who cuts you off in traffic or, you know, the things that are so easily that we just can easily get so like annoyed by or ramped up by? I don't know. I just I feel like it does. It changes the way I want to, you know, serve my husband. Like 
make him breakfast before he goes off to work. It's like little things that are the, all the little things add up to, to big things. I believe whether it's your health or your attitude or your perspective, but I don't know me every day. That's what I do. I've been trying to wake up every single day and be like, thank you, God. I get one more day. How can I make the most impact maximum impact in our small amount of time that we have on earth? That should be every single person's goal. <laughs> Absolutely. Or how would it change the world if it was? Well, I think, I mean, we are. We're so distracted. I say we, I'm including myself. This morning, I remember reaching for my cell phone. And, and one of the things I'm checking for at the moment is, you know, has my grandmother passed? Because she's basically not eating for now for a week. So it's foregone conclusion. But, you know, it, so there's, that's the problem is you can always justify, well, I need to check for this. You know, do you? Is it really that important? Do you need to check that email now? Do you need to check your in this case, your podcast downloads, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I feel <laughs> like if we if we were able to put that true heartfelt gratitude back in, it would change so many things. As I touched on earlier, you know, would you still argue about the skin tone of a fi fictional mermaid? Or would you put your phone down and have breakfast with your child before they go to school? Yeah, that's so important. And you want to, you know, what's that saying? If you want to change the world, it starts at home. It starts in your home, right? How we interact with our kids. We're raising the next generation. And I'm super guilty too. And I, I, it's this beauty, right? It's the balance again of having, I work from home. I work for myself. I have all my business on my phone, but at what detriment? Like it's, would serve us so well to just be disciplined with it. And it's something I'm working on. I'm super guilty of it because it's easy to just pick it up. And then you're just, you start the distractions, right? And especially when you have an online business and all the things, I don't know, something I'm definitely working on in my life is just being more disciplined with it and being really aware. We actually have a saying at our house, we call it the lame card. So if someone is sitting on the table and and they're just scrolling on social media. Like sometimes you have to finish a text or you're legit doing something. But if you're just scrolling on social and you're missing real life for this life, we give, we call it a lame card. And all we have to do is go lame. And most of the times, like sometimes you're like, Ooh, but most of the time you're like, I am being lame. I'm sorry. And you put your phone down <laughs> because there's this whole thing right in here. Mm -hmm. But if you're just in this world on social, checking out what Jane Doe's doing next door, you are missing this. You're missing the conversations that you could be having with the people in the kitchen that are right there. And it's so easy and we all do it. But yeah, so we were just like, hey, if you get a lame card, there's no arguing it. You just go, yep, lame. <laughs> I'm being lame. And most <laughs> of the times you are, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I love the fact my son will call me out on it too. You know, of course, a parent will tell a child, get yeah. off your phone. Well, the children should also tell the parents, get off your phone, fuck stick. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's make it fair in the Absolutely. household. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, then. How old is your son? My son's just turned 15 as well. So the same age. Oh, he's 15. Yeah. So oh, interesting, yeah. you know, Good age. one foot either side of puberty and one foot either side of, you know, childhood and adulthood. So, yeah, very. Very interesting time, but, um, you know, overall, an, an incredible age. Like, he'll literally, one minute he's, you know, in JROTC doing leadership stuff in this, you know, this school military program. The next minute he still enjoys Lego. So he's in, in his room building stuff. So, you know, I love that, you know, he hasn't let go of his childlike element as he grows into a man. So I hope that stays. I love that. 
So I want to kind of get into your own grieving journey before we we talk about the book. Um, you know, you finally, um, let's say finally, that's the wrong way of putting it. Trucker, you know, transitions over, he, he passes away. Um, talk to me about the grieving, because as you're, you're clear about in the book, I think it's such an important thing for people to understand. You're never going to get over it. You're never going to heal. You know, you've lost a loved one. But there's a journey, you know, a, an undulation that hopefully is trending towards, you know, growth from such pain. What were... When you look back now, what were some of the things that served you well as you navigated that? And where were some of the dark places you found yourself as well? Oof. So I think one of the things that served me well, honestly, when I look back at the first couple years, I was an emotional zombie. I was doing things you know, I opened a store, so <laughs> such a silly idea, but I love shopping. If you know me, you know, I love shopping. I love like new cute things and I'm really girly that way. And so after trucker passed, I was like, I'm going to open a store. And two of my friends were like, yeah, let's open a store. That's a great idea. And, and I just was never meant to have a store. I don't have any regrets because it, um, you have to do things to know that that's not what you want to do. But I tell everyone that was a really expensive way to learn that just because you love shopping, you shouldn't have a store. <laughs> and also I think that to be fair, just anything I would have done in that time, I couldn't put a hundred percent energy towards because I was really emotionally surviving doing all the things like people are like, Oh, she opened a store. She must be doing good. Look at her. But really I was like, I don't know how to live without my baby it was so hard emotionally. It was so, so hard. So I think that as I am stepping into now the rear view mirror part where I'm like, okay, I think the things that were really helpful for me and still are is just honoring my emotions. You know, people used to come into my store when I was working and then they would walk out crying. <laughs> like, well, I can't not share my story. And and it wasn't crying like that was so sad talking to her. But it was also like, I'm going to I'm going to go and, you know, say sorry to my husband. And like people realized, I think just again, looking at me, seeing the fragility of life and how I'm just trying to survive. And my business partner used to laugh at me all the time, but it just was it was like, I can't not I'm real you'll get what you get with me and so if I'm having a shitty day you're gonna know it if I'm having a sad day you're gonna see me cry and and I always tell people that I'm kind of a professional public crier because I have big emotions that I feel <laughs> you know it's okay to cry anyway so yeah people used to um walk out of my store crying and and then thank me right of course um but I I think that one of the biggest things that has been helpful is just honoring honoring my emotions, screaming in my car, crying from my soul in the shower, and then saying no to things that don't feel right. Do you want to go to Thanksgiving food? No. You want to go to the neighbor's party? No. I don't feel like just pretending. I think that there's this, this season after someone you love passes where everybody gathers around you at the beginning and then the funeral happens and then everyone goes home and, and the people that didn't have the people that don't have that direct person in their life, their life just goes back to normal. But you, but that's really when your grieving starts. You're like, okay, well now I have to, 
actually figure out how to what this looks like. How do how do I live with this level of heartache? Right. Sometimes I felt like I was I couldn't breathe, but I still was breathing. So <laughs> you have to figure out how to just keep doing the things, even if you feel like a zombie. But I think that's what was really helpful for me. And I and I think even now that's still helpful for me. If I'm having a rough emotional day, I can easily just have boundaries and say, I just need to process something. Maybe it's another layer. Maybe it's something, but I don't need to do anything to try to please anyone else. So I think, I think I hope that answered that question. No, absolutely. Now, you know, that that's the takeaways and I want to really get into that as well um, from the book because the book was so well written and I'll touch on some reasons why I can see what a great match it is for people that are about to lose someone that maybe have already lost someone. But the other side of the coin, you know, this you see these kind of losses sometimes challenge family dynamics, sometimes channel challenge you know, actual mental health. Where were some of the lowest points you and or other members of the family found themselves before you navigated through some of this? Man, I don't know. It kind of all just felt like a low. Like the first couple of years were tough. So, so tough emotionally. Um, I think when you're grieving as a family too, the best way I could describe it was like, I had this grief bubble, right? And and my grief bubble was attached to all the other people that I loved the most in the world who had their own grief bubble. And grief is such a personal journey, right? Um, I remember, and I talk about this in the book, but one night I was just crying, laying in bed and Joshua grabbed my hand and he was like, you don't have to feel lonely. And I was like, I love you so much for saying that, but we can be crying about the exact same thing and we're still feeling something different because as humans, we're so biodynamically different. We process memories and emotions differently. We process life differently. Everything is different. We had a different relationship. I had a different relationship with Trucker than Joshua did. And so we can both be crying and being sad about the same thing and still feel lonely. Right. And I, I think that loneliness is a really, uh, it's one of the hardest emotions that come with grief. There's this very lonely aspect. So I think lowest point is just that it's just, you feel gutted. And so I have this grief bubble, right. And I'm just trying to stay afloat in my zombie, like emotional state. But then every now and then I'm like, Oh no, I got to peek through my bubble. Like, are they okay? are they okay? Are they okay? Like also trying to navigate nurturing the people that I love the most and their heart while I'm trying to just process what life looks like now. And I remember one time someone called Indiana, I think it was maybe one of the New York boys or someone. And they were like, how's your parents doing? And I was listening to her call and she said, I think they're having a lot. I think they're doing a lot worse than we are. And I was like, oh, baby, but we were, right? It's different. I've lost a brother. It's it's hard. It hurts. But losing a brother and losing a child, it's a different kind of loss. And it's relative. Loss is loss. But it's still different. So, yeah, I think that's the, the lowest point is just trying to figure out how to keep living. Well, when you talk about the grief bubble, when I met Becky, my wife, 
she had just lost her boyfriend just over a year before mm. to suicide. And he was on the oh. phone to her when he took his own life. So she was pretty, you know, oh. traumatized. But her her son, who became my, my bonus boy, Ethan, he was 11 at the time. And that is exactly how I would describe that family dynamic when I first walked in. She adores that little boy. But at the time, she was in her grief bubble. He was in his grief bubble. And, you know, it, it, they were they were kind of living together, but were almost independent. So I can see yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Now, in the book, you talk about some of the things that work for you. So I just kind of love to just touch on some things, the relationships yeah. with animals and the healing element, and then yeah. some of the things that we spoke about at the very beginning, how, how nutrition and exercise has also helped with your healing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, because we're all so different, we're going to process the loss differently. And, and, you know, as you said, you know, equine therapy is great for some, and it's not for all. So that's what I tell everyone. And I hope that I portrayed that well in the book that here's all of, of these tools that you have or different things that you can try, and you're going to have to figure out um, how to process it for you. Um, I did watch the most beautiful thing with my daughter and equine therapy that I've one of the most beautiful things I've ever witnessed in my life. But there's a woman who does equine therapy here and she invited Indiana to go out there and and so we showed up and we were a little bit early and and there was one horse and he was like <laughs> it was all wild and we weren't really sure like what was gonna happen with equine therapy like is she gonna hop on a horse and ride him or whatever and she didn't hadn't had a lot of horse experience at the time and so we showed up and I was joking I was like that's your horse ha <laughs> ha she's like oh I hope not and so the lady shows up and she's like that's your horse and we were like oh no <laughs> <laughs> but then I watched the most beautiful thing happen so she was like I chose this horse because this horse also knows loss horses are incredibly sensitive emotional beings and they will mirror your emotions so I watched Indiana go from being like this shy like I'm really getting in here. I'm really getting into this <laughs> little stall with this crazy horse. And she was super timid. And and then, you know, within the hour, that horse and her bonded and he was following her around like a dog. It was like, it was so beautiful. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. I was just crying on the sidelines. Like what just happened? That was so amazing and so I think horses have been really healing for my daughter we actually never went back up there just like timing wise and she's pretty far but my daughter did get into playing polo and horses are totally her I think it's been so healing for her just there's so much power in uh having control over a big strong animal like that or control is not the right word but having relationship and you know um shared energy <laughs> beautiful. beautiful yeah i had um, uh do you know who buck Brannaman is have you ever heard that name it sounds familiar but i'm not sure so he's really the guy that the horse whisperer was written about um okay and uh had a really traumatic childhood was uh basically a performing child cowboy for tv commercials when he was young very abusive father and he found the relationship with horses was so healing. And ironically, like his his brother was, you know, remained very angry and 
never really processed it, but Buck became this world-renowned horse whisperer. And, you know, I actually went and watched one of his clinics once, but it's it's incredible. You talk about the horse, it's literally a mirror for yourself, you know, and it will express the way that, that you are. Um, just one more thing before we go to the book. Talk to me about nutrition and exercise and how that's factored in. Yeah. Well, as I was saying before, I just learned so much about our bodies and, you know, holistic. I love everything holistic. I think mentally, physically, food wise, all of the little things add up to your overall contributing health. So um, I learned a lot with trucker. Then I went back to school to become a nutritional therapy practitioner. And I just, we take just, we just take care of ourselves. It's been such a big part of my healing because I feel like if you are just putting crap in your body, your body can't heal. And there's a really good book. Have you ever read it? The body keeps the score. Yes. Yeah. Just how our emotional, our body stores memories as, as energy, right? So we are, our bodies are just so incredible. And so we can store these traumatic events in different ways in our body um, than you could possibly ever wildly imagine. So taking care of our body is just so pivotal to any kind of healing and exercising too. It's always been a really big thing for me. So I remember um, one day I was sitting at the Ronald McDonald house. It was actually just after we had met Captain Jim and I was so lonely. I was in New York. Trucker was going through heavy chemo at the time. And I was like, what am I doing? I had it worked out and I'm a worker at I've been a worker out my whole entire adult life. And so I hadn't been working out. I'd been spending a majority of my days at the hospital or in the hospital. And I remember feeling like I know better get out there exercise. And so I threw trucker in a stroller and we didn't really know the city very well yet, but I started running at central park. And so we ran at central park, like whenever I could, if trucker wasn't feeling good, I just wrapped him in blankets and he slept in the trailer stroller. And I started running. And I think that saved me mentally in that season because, um, when I run, I don't listen to music. I, I talk to God. Like that's my time where I just pray and, and, and I'm not distracted with my phone or anything else that's going on, you know? So that really saved me. So I think exercising and sweating is so pivotal along with nourishing your body so it can fire on all the levels that it's meant to. It's just so important in healing and, and important in prevention, right? We talked a little bit about, you know, PUFAs, you know, tox toxins in our environment and a lot of fire service, you know, but it really they're, they're everywhere, not just PUFAs, but which are actually known as forever chemicals. All of our bodies need detox and there's gentle ways that you can detox, but we live in the most toxic world that we've ever had. And just like all the good little choices that you make contribute to your overall health. Well, all of those toxins are also accumulative. So if you're not helping your body by, you know, detoxing regularly, which sweating is a natural form of detox, which is good, but also just the endorphins that sweating gives you are your feel good hormones. And it's, I feel pivotal to healing. Absolutely. Now just one thing again before I get, I always say is like, I think for about half an hour, I've been saying one thing before we get to the book. But the last thing before <laughs> we get to the book, you, you leaned into your faith as so many people do. But when people say to someone who's lost a child, a pediatric cancer, God has a plan, I can see how that must jar. So how did you navigate 
the you know the kind of there was a reason for this uh, mm. comments and 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 still remain you know retain that relationship with god yeah i think that well navigating the comments i really just had to flip a switch on my perspective on how i saw people i think people just really don't know what to say so because we were so vocal with our story people felt like they they knew us, right? Like I had someone say one time, wow, you just went on the trip of a lifetime. And I was like, do you know why we went on that trip? It was, we did amazing things on our road trip. And, and that's a whole nother topic that we could touch on. But but I, it, I know what she, she was trying to say. She was trying to say, I don't know. She was just trying to connect with me and felt like she knew me because we had shared so much. So I, but in my mind, I was like, I don't want to punch you in the face right now. Like we want to go. <laughs> gone on that trip if my son hadn't passed away right so yeah. but but that's only gonna hurt me if I have that perspective so I just I really had to just see people through the lens of them really wanting to connect with me because people felt like they knew us right um but it was hard and I'll, I'll never say I think it's something people just say because they don't know what to say but you know everything happens for a reason I don't actually believe that. I don't think everything happens for a reason. If you've lived in the pediatric cancer world, I will not say you could not say this happening for a reason. That's total bullshit. But I do think that out of every sort of circumstance that we go through in our life, if you can find purpose within your tragedy or within your pain and use that to fuel your love for helping other people that may be going through a hard similar-esque situation then your painful situation becomes somewhat redemptive and there's healing there's healing there and that's really what this is a great way for me to start to share with my book i been processing all these emotions and all these things. And, and every time I talked to somebody about, you know, trucker dying or all the things they were like, you should talk about that more. I'm like, no, no, I don't want to talk about that more. And so <laughs> how the book came about, I never wanted to write a book. I never wanted to be an author. I never wanted to uh, write about grief. And what I wanted to do was gather people. I had this idea. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with just personal development in general. And I'd went to this leadership conference last February in Arizona, and we did the strength finders test. And, and my top strengths were gathering people and influence, which if you know me, like, hello, I love gathering people. I love having people in my home. I'm, I, it's my gift, hospitality. And so I was like, I can't believe I haven't thought about this before, but I wanted to, and I was writing this in my mind. I wanted to gather people for retreats on Maui like come and spend four days with me. And I really, my heart is to help people own their stories. And then just what I was saying, find purpose in their stories, because one of the things, one of the reasons why I love you so much and, and how you show up in the world is because you tell people stories. And I think that every single human being has a story to tell or some part of their life that they could share that could impact and help somebody else through something that they're going on with every single human. I think human beings in general are fascinating. I love humans. I love people watching. I want to know everyone's stories. And so that's a part of it. But so I wanted to have these retreats where I help people own their stories and then find purpose in helping other people do the same or whatever. And one day I went for a run. I told you I talked to God when I run and God was like, 
so I wanted to name this retreat, what if, like, what if you owned your story, all of it, even the hard parts? And what if you use that to fuel your purpose and your future? And God was like, I know that you really, that's what I felt like he was saying, you know, I don't have like a burning bush in my back. <laughs> he wasn't in the stroller looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just felt this whisper, like, I know you really want to help people own their stories. And that's so great. But how about let's start with you? And I was like, oh, I know, duh, obviously that like would make sense, right? But I was like, but mine is so hard. And he's like, I know you really want to have these retreats and call them what if, but you're actually going to write a book and you're going to call it even if. And I was like, okay, I kind of like it. <laughs> I kind of like it. And so um, by the time I had got home from that run, I had these ideas in my mind and I had this whole blog post written on grief. And I walked in the house and the kids started talking, asking me questions. And I just sat down and started writing. I was like, just come back in like half an hour. And I had to get it out. Like it was just all in my brain. And I, so I scribbled it out. And six hours later, I published this blog post and I had the best feedback from it. Just not in the way that like you wrote so well. I don't even like my husband's a way more articulate person than me. It's just me sharing my thoughts on my experience and and it helped people they were like thank you so much for putting your words down I love your perspective you helped me and 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 that felt good right and I'm like all right I'm listening what else you got right so kind of just how the book came about was me realizing hey well I want to help people own their stories which I still want to do which I'm still writing those retreats it just got paused to write a book um, is me fully stepping into, I didn't want to be known as a grief expert, but grief is part of my story and that that can still look beautiful. Well, I got to say, I thought it was so well written. You talked about storytelling. There are, you know, a, a spectrum of stories in there from people that lost infants through to two husbands. So, the, you know, whatever your grief is, you know, it, you're going to be able to relate to the stories. But I think another thing that was so well done is you, you kept it shorter and you also, you didn't like, it's not a biography of, of Shauna and Trucker that's going to have someone who's heartbroken, even more heartbroken. The right. way that you kept it surface level and you broke it up to me when someone's deep in, in grief and, and therefore probably most likely, you know, a cloud of depression, they're not going to be able to dip into a 500 page, you know, biography on, on grieving. So I thought it was so well done because you would go from, you know, your perspective to someone else's story to your perspective and takeaways. So I've just got to say, I mean, I thought it was so well written and is an invaluable resource for anyone because we're all going to experience grief at some point, whether it's, you know, whether you're a, an orphan who's never known any other family member, but you adore your cat or, you know, you're a member of this giant family that's aging. So I just want to say, firstly, kudos, you wrote a beautiful book and I think it's invaluable to everyone listening to get a copy. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. That was really my heart was, okay, so now I'm going to step into writing this. And I was thinking about me in those first, you know, especially a couple months trying to figure out our years, I was buying every book on child loss or loss. Like how do people live with this kind of a heartache? And, and I did read some really good books, but some of them I just couldn't get through. They were just too meaty and you're right. It's just, it's too much. So I wanted to create a book that was an easy read. And when I say easy, meaning like you can read it pretty easily in a day, um, 
but not easy in the fact that, again, talking about a child dying of pediatric cancer is not easy to read. But I hope, my heart was, that people would walk away with hope that they can still live with joy because that's been my experience, that I can just, you know, talk about my son dying in my arms and cry one second and the next minute turn around and, you know, kiss my husband and send my kids off and, or, you know, safety third and laugh hysterically. Like we enjoy life. The perspective, the rawness of loss has created this um, appreciation that I wouldn't have known without experiencing the depths of the loss that I have. Well, I think as well, if you want to just instill gratitude, you know, it's another book just as a reminder to to live every day. I mean, you don't have to be having just lost someone or about to lose someone. It's it's also, I think the most important lessons are the ones that we learn ourselves, but the the best case scenarios we learn from other people first. And this is another great way of, as you said, go through the store, through the medium of story and be reminded, hey, maybe I should put my cell phone today. Maybe, maybe I should lace up some sneakers and go for a walk today. You know, whatever, whatever it is, when you reframe, this may be my last day. And it's funny because some people say, oh, what would you do on your last day? And oh, shit, I better go skydiving and swim with sharks. Like, no, just, just be present with the ones that you love. Put the devices down, you know, do something that gets your heart rate up. Do something, you know, kiss someone that, that, you know, whatever it is. But, remember that yet yeah, as you said tomorrow is promised to no one so i think the other element of the book was just to remind her to 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 be present in this miracle that we call life i love that yeah i also put together um a journal i don't know if i've i should have sent you one of those too but i had some i had a few printing issues with amazon so the first round of journals that I had printed and sent to my house came like pink. I was like, they're supposed to be white. That's kind of weird. So anyway, I probably didn't have one yet when I sent it, but I sent it to you. But um, I put together a prayer journal one and then cultivating gratitude because I feel, here's another, a big part of my journey is that even still is cultivating gratitude. I think that joy and gratitude go together. And if we can daily, again, wake up, thank God or whoever you're thinking for the extra time that you have, then there's joy, right? You're like, wow, if this day is really a gift, there's joy there. And I, I feel like there's a lot that we can be grateful for, even on our darkest, hardest, most drained emotional days, every single one of us can still jot down things that we're grateful for. And by cultivating gratitude, you can cultivate joy. And I'm kind of a little bit of obsessed with the word cultivate right now. It means to make better, to make something better, to cultivate. I'm like, that's so beautiful. We can cultivate anything in our life. We are 100% responsible for how we move forward. Um, There's this quote that I love. Um, It says, don't feel sorry for yourselves. Only assholes do that. I'm like, that is so good. It's true. (laughs) That's my kind of quote. It's true, right? It's so true because I think it's pretty easy to have a pity party and not for that to be confused with the complicated emotions that come with death. Those are real and they're important to feel. It's not staying there. It's feeling them and then still cultivating gratitude and joy in your life. It's both, right? Because it's easy to just have a pity party and feel like the world owes you a favor, but the world doesn't owe anybody anything. You owe yourself something, you know? You owe yourself the way that you choose to move forward. K, 
can you find purpose in your pain? Are you using your life circumstances to help other humans grow? I mean, I think that's what we're here for. I think on a, on a deeper level, every single one of us longs for connection. Absolutely. But Absolutely. how do we get that connection if no one was willing to share? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, it's, it's storytelling and it's vulnerability like we've touched on. I think that's it going back to, you know, the people coming back from hunts, from war, from whatever it is, you know, that tell their stories when they return. So, um, so people listening, I'm sure, you know, are endeared. Like I'm, I'm telling you, you need to buy the book and I'm sure the journals are going to be invaluable as well. I love the five minute journal. I've used that for a long time now. Um, where can people find any of these online? And then also, are there any, any other places you're talking about potential retreats? Are there any other places that they can look into that as well? Everything can be accessed on my website, shaunadukes.com. My book, Even If, and the journals are on Amazon. Um, I had a really fantastic book launch, which made it to like the bestseller status on Amazon, which was so, so fun. But now I'm like, please come to shaunadukes.com and buy through me because Jeff Bezos has enough money. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then everything coming up, all the, I'm actually writing several different retreats in my mind. I'm, I'm writing a like healthy start 101 online workshop that I want to do, or I do a little bit of one-on-one -on -one nutritional coaching as well. I'm writing retreats to come to Maui, but maybe even one day my dream is worldwide because you could have those kind of retreats like Bali, Costa Rica, which we have connections all over. Um, but yeah, my journals are there. I also sell on there we had i think i sent you one did i send you a trucker shaka sticker you did yep it was, it was in okay, the book good. so when i opened the first page it fell out and i made me smile okay <laughs> oh yay so we had a really dear friend of ours who's a tattoo artist draw trucker shaka identical like he's got my super crooky thumb and he had a mole in the middle of his hand and so we had him draw his shaka off this picture and then we made stickers so i sell those on my website as well I love to send them to people in books because it just has someone to people send me pictures like Minnesota with a trucker shaka sticker. Like it makes me so happy because it's just another way that we can have truckers legacy going into the future. Um, but it means a lot to me. Every um, the purchase, some a portion of the person portion of every purchase of the trucker shaka I'm donating to a nonprofit that we love. I have several that we support. A big one that I really, really love is my dear friend and her husband. They had a son named, he, he's still with us, Kicker, who got leukemia when he was two. And she was already a nutritional therapy practitioner. Um, so she started implementing all these natural modalities, like right away in the hospital, bone broth and supplements and detox. And in three and a half years of his cancer treatment, the kid didn't even spike one fever. This is like un heard of they told her that he was going to probably have 10 to 15 and end up in the hospital he basically thrived through cancer treatment so she they started a nonprofit called kit cancer and they send out educational kits to families that um that are fighting cancer that want to help their bodies holistically as well so it's just it's um they send a kit for the cost of shipping which has you know just detox food recommendations, essential oils that can help. Um, and what am I missing? And nutrition ideas. So really helpful tool. So we love to support nonprofits. I have another friend that we support regularly 
who is a walking miracle. He, his, his organization is called uvsc.org, us versus cancer or you versus cancer.org. And he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer seven years ago now, and they gave him four months to live. He's still walking. He's the one percentile people that survived. So he's just such a beautiful inside and out man. Um, and he actually, Trucker, when he started his nonprofit, our family, Trucker was the first beneficiary so they did a big fundraiser on Maui and so we partnered with him for a ton of different things and we would do anything for him but yeah again so many people doing good things to give back out of their experiences that we love to support so beautiful well I will put the links for all those on the webpage with this episode Sean I just want to say thank you it's been firstly an honor to even be you know an extended part of the family and to, to have you know, known virtually trucker and then to have, you know, been with you guys ever since and to talk to Joshua and now here to, to hear his story through your eyes and this incredible book that you've written. So I just want to thank you so much for opening your heart today. Cause I know it comes, you know, at a cost every time anyone kind of relive some of this. But as you said, pulling all the, the, the healing and, 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 um, positivity from tragedy is so, so important. So thank you so mm. much. Thank you so much. I loved spending this time with you and I hope you and your cute family come and visit us in Maui. Mm-hmm.